Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob. And this week on Cinemodities, we are in the third episode of our pure Cinemodities series, in which we are saying right at the start, that what we're discussing is a cinemodity. Now, if you remember last week, uh, we have a little wrinkle in this where we Zach picked a movie that he thought was a cinemodity, which I watched, we discussed, and I agreed with was a pure cinemodity. So now the tables are turned. Rob has chosen something that he believes is a pure cinemodity, um, something that Zach had never seen, but I think he had some history with. And we got to watch 1991's Nothing but trouble. The Dan Aykroyd movie. That's the that's the subtitle for this, right? It's nothing but trouble. Colon <laughs> the Dan Aykroyd movie. <laughs> As if there could be any other person I could make this besides Dan Aykroyd. Yes, exactly. So I guess we have to get right in to the moment of truth, since this is our pure cinemodity series. Uh, are you in agreement, Zach, that we have we have stuck to a pure cinemodity this week, or are we going to be split? No, no, it's a pure cinemodity. Okay, okay. I figured that you know there was no, there's no real way to argue that this is not a cinemodity. I think. <laughs> no, this is, uh, yeah, this is, this is bonkers. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess before we get into how this movie is bonkers, uh, I, I wanted to give my history with it because I think that it, it maybe subverted my expectations is a good way to put it. So back in my undergrad, when I was living uh, with three other people, there was this kind of one vacation or one weekend where, you know, all my roommates went home. They lived maybe 30 to an hour, 30 minutes to an hour away in Pittsburgh. I had nowhere to go. I wasn't going to go the whole eight hours back to New York for a weekend. So I was in the apartment by myself. And on that weekend, for whatever reason, I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm collecting a bunch of movies in undergrad. I'm filling up my hard drives. Let's go through all the DVDs that my roommates brought to a college with them. And I'm going through the box of DVDs. I'm seeing if there's anything interesting so I can, you know, rip them onto my computer and have them forever. And as I'm going through the box, I find nothing but trouble on DVD. And I, I had never heard of it at this point, maybe 2011, 2012. And I look at the cover and it's the, you know, the, the floating head cover. And it says it's got Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Chevy Chase and Demi Moore. And I look at this and go, wow, this sounds great. I love all these actors, you know, and it's like, oh, a, a John Candy film. I love John Candy, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd. I think on the cover he's, you know, dressed in the, the old judge costume. And I'm like, this looks awesome. So I, I ripped it onto my computer. I don't think I watched it right away. Maybe some time went by and just, you know, looking for something to see. Eventually I was like, oh, hey, nothing but trouble. That should be good. It should be really funny with all these people in it. I throw the movie on, and for the next 90 minutes, I was just kind of, like, both intrigued by what I was seeing in terms of the setting of this movie and completely baffled by the actual content of the film or the plot of the film. And from then on, I was just like, wow, that was a crazy movie. And slowly and slowly, I started to hear more and more about the the background and the inner workings and really the story about how this movie got made. And that was my history with it. And now I think, Zach, if you've, if 
I remember or understand what you've told me, you kind of had the reverse. You had never seen this movie, but had heard so much about it just because of kind of the maybe not controversy. Is that the right word behind the scenes? Well, the weird thing about this movie is that you look. I was. I won't, This was never like a movie that like I'd hear about. Like this was never like a Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two. Yeah. It was never like that. Where like, oh, like even like we've talked about the difference between like The Room. The Room, I think, might be the perfect example of a cult film where like it's just on the verge of being mainstream. And mm-hmm. obviously, James Franco helped put it even closer to that mark. Uh, but there are lesser tiers. Like you have your again, your Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two. Uh, even now, Eraserhead isn't really hard to find. Like it's available on like again iTunes. It's it's accessible. Yeah. And I should say nothing but trouble is also accessible. There's very few movies now that are genuinely like inaccessible to the public. But this was one that was never even on that level. Like I never had heard about it. It was never even like, something I was like, oh, like, you should check this out. And it wasn't until I want to say I think it was Red Letter Media did like a review on it. Where it was like I watched it and I'm like, wow, this sounds like this sounds crazy. And I think they did that review within the last like year, year and a half. So I want to say it's like since we started doing cinema of these. Okay. So like it was on the short list. I think that's why I mentioned it to you. And you're like, oh, I've seen that movie. It's weird. But like I haven't watched the Red Letter Media thing about it. And so like it was on my list. I think I got it from the library once, just never got around to watching it. And then we were finally were like kind of like discussing the series. It was like, oh, like we should definitely do this. And then there's like, we'll, we'll get more into this later. But there's like a behind the scenes like fan documentary that I found. And this was like a, like six or eight months ago. And that was another one where I was like, oh, I watched that without ever seeing the film. And, and I, I have to say, like after seeing the film now, in a weird way, I appreciate the behind the scenes story more than I do the actual film itself. <laughs> okay. Because like I've watched, and I don't want to get too far into my thoughts on this though, but I do think this is a film where the context is, that surrounds it is more interesting than the film itself. Mm, okay. Okay. And that's where I'll leave it for now before we start delving into the film. Okay. Okay. Right on. I, I do have to agree. The, the behind the scenes stuff is very interesting. Um, the movie itself, I guess I should say, I don't really love it. I don't really hate it. I'm kind of more neutral on it. I guess we'll have to talk about all the details, but I've seen this movie, I think, three times now, and every time I watch it, it gets more and more where I don't care about the plot or the characters that they're portraying in front of me. I just want to be in this place. I want to be in this mansion. I want to be in this junkyard and explore it because it's just so weird. (laughs) You know, they got like the Stonehenge of cars. They got the slide into the bone pit. It's just, it, I, I love the setting in this movie, and I think that's what really gets it for me, why I've been able to watch it three times, because the plot is is lacking, definitely, I believe. <laughs> well, there is no plot. That's the thing. There is no, like, this is a movie which it feels like, again, Danny Ancorp is wearing so many different hats on the set of this, mm-hmm. that it's kind of, like, hard to believe that an actual film got made. Yeah, yeah. Because, again, he's he's, like, producer, director, actor. Oh, good Lord. Like he's signing off on everything. And it's like, oh, this is another example of, I think it's like almost a genre now, cinematis, of like nobody knew when to say no. Mm-hmm. And the thing about those, that like clearly the person that was that should have said no is the person making all the dumb decisions. Yeah, just like who's saying yes to everything. It's like exactly. the, um, 
the Jim Carrey movie Yes Man, but for someone working on a movie in Hollywood. <laughs> but it's like Dan. It's funny thing. It's like Dan Ancourt's the one coming up with all the weird ideas. Yeah, he's the producer. He's obviously not going to sit there override himself. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing where it's like, oh, like Dan Ancourt's wearing both the producer and a director's hat, and that's when you usually get into like trouble with Hollywood movies. Is because there isn't that like safeguard. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Cause, cause no. What um. What's his name? John Landis or whatever, whoever the guy Dan Aykroyd works with a lot, John Landis oh, or John yeah. Hughes or one of them, yeah, to rein him in on like Blues Brothers and things like that. Well, yeah, like even like Ivan Reitman and like Ghostbusters. It's like that idea that like, like it's like any good idea. It's like you come up with an idea and you tell it to someone, they're like, eh, or no. And you have mm-hmm. to kind of refine the idea to make it more like palatable to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Find what works, find what doesn't, you know, build up the the good stuff. Strip away the bad stuff, absolutely, rather than just, you know, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> or, or in this instance, just throw all of it at the wall and it sticks. Yes. Like, that's what happens. It's like, like, as I was watching this, I couldn't help but feel a lot of, like, a lot has been borrowed from this by other movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely got a freaked vibe. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, especially when they first introduced the bone stripper. And they show like the machinery of it. It looks mm-hmm. so. It reminded me so much of the um, the Zygrot twenty four machine, the freak making machine from Freaked. So yeah, I totally agree. Well, even just the whole idea of having like that mad. I know it's supposed to be like another like play on Doctor Moreau, but it's the idea of having like a like a megalomaniacal villain in the mm-hmm. boonies making decisions and just like doing things that are unnatural and grotesque. And you get even like the what would you even want to call it the. The reservation they have with like it's like oh these little different like sectors even freak you have oh god what's um oh my god what's his name I can't think of the name the bad guy in freaked oh uh, Elijah C Scuggs yes Scuggs you have like Scuggs is <laughs> a little like house you have like where he keeps the freaks he has his little like um three ring tent yeah and you have that in this you have JP's house you have where um the bone like the the oh my lord this okay, what's the name of the machine. The bone stripper. <laughs> bone stripper. Okay, I haven't seen this enough times to remember all this stuff. And you have that. You have the junkyard. And it's all kind of like of the moat. You have the drawbridge. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's all different partitions of Vulcanvania. And that's where I feel like. And then like even like like the the dinner scene is very Texas Chainsaw Massacre esque. Oh, the fact yeah. that the people even jump through the window at the the the, the Brazilian <laughs> brother and yep. sister jump through the window. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of derivative of this. No, okay, not of this, but like you can see where this borrowed from things and where people have borrowed from it in subsequent years. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Because that's the one thing I was watching. For the record, I didn't really like it or dislike it, mm-hmm. but I feel like if I had a high definition quality version of it and I could go back and like watch the background, I think mm-hmm. I would enjoy that more because there's so many like different, there's so much to look at in the frame. Yes. And it, we never linger on it long enough to really appreciate it. Because like you said, like there isn't really, I don't think really any of the humor for the most part lands. Like most of it's just like, oh God, it's like quipping humor. Like yeah. Chevy Chase is doing his shtick. But other than that, like there's really not a lot of humor unless you're just like laughing at Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I have to agree. I think the um the only thing in this movie that actually made me laugh, I don't even know if it was supposed to be a joke, but there's that scene where John Candy as the police officer pulls over the the drunk drivers who also just have a big sack of cocaine. Um but he pulls them over and uh the the drunk driver that he gets out of the car like pulls a gun on him and he starts like John Candy starts acting acting like, "Oh no, no, please don't shoot me. It doesn't have to end this way." And then just like 
whips out an Uzi like he's a cop. Uh, he's a cop just on like you know patrol. He's like one of the only cops in this town, and he has an Uzi. <laughs> he just pulls it out of nowhere and like points it at this guy, and he's like, "You're under arrest." And I was that's for the, some reason I thought that was the funniest thing in this movie. <laughs> yeah, like it, ha- it has its moments. Like it's trying. You blew double drunk within the village limits. You're going with me. Sure. Whatever you say, officer. Say goodnight, copper. <laughs> please. Please, no. Ah! Don't kill me. Chiefy, pal. I was only kidding. <laughs> but it's like, what genre would you even, like, classify this as? Oh, jeez. Um, uh, I'm not sure. It's It's some type of... It has the horror. I don't know, like, like failed comedy horror. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean, though. Like, I feel this is also kind of in the same vein, almost like a cat in the hat, where it's like it's a surrealist film. Mm. Like, it's just so like nothing is really grounded. Yeah. Oh, so definitely. like you have no idea like which way is up. Like everything's kind of weird in that sense. And that's another one where I feel like it's 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 like almost like if anything from Cinematis, it's like we've coined a new genre, surrealism. Yeah. surrealist cinema or at least maybe like blockbuster surrealist cinema because i know you could go into like the stuff that like salvador dali did like there's i know he dabbled in filmmaking for a little bit mm. but like maybe we again surrealist blockbuster cinema yeah yeah surreal is a good way to put it um maybe some type of like absurd surrealism yeah and that's kind of what this is like it feels like, like again 40 million dollar budget and you get this again, like hundred million dollar for the cat in the hat. You get that gods, yeah. of, gods of Egypt, things <laughs> like that, where it's like, okay, clearly somebody had a vision and either they couldn't translate it to the screen or they never had a vision and made it up as they went along. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. And after this feel, this feels like, oh, like being on set and somebody being like, Dan Ancroyd, uh, we have this great idea for having this in the background. He'd be like, great, do it. Then like yeah. someone else would come to him and be like, "Oh, I have this idea for this sequence. Great, let's do it." And like we'll link to it in the show notes. But like there was again this fan documentary that was done. Like the whole idea, like the set designer was like looking for like weird props and found like a discounted like used roller coaster for like fifteen thousand dollars. And was like, "Okay, that's gonna be the bone stripper." Yeah. It's like that's gonna be like the delivery mechanism, and that's where even like the idea of like when he comes down during the dinner sequence, he comes like down from like. The ceiling suspended by ropes. Yeah, it's like oh, it's like clearly that was like somebody went up to Dan Ancor. It's like, wouldn't it be great if you like you entered the scene from like the ceiling and be like, great, let's do it. (laughs) And that's what it feels like. It feels like a lot of just like somebody pitched an idea and just great, let's do it. Yeah, some I'm sure someone was like, we need five thousand toasters for one shot, and he was like, perfect, (laughs) let's do it. (laughs) We'll have Chevy Chase say, look at all those toasters. Literally one sequence. Even like the condiment train at the dinner table. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's so much creativity just for little bits and pieces. And I think that's what keeps me going through this movie. Like I said, like I want to be there. I want to see more of this. I want to experience, you know, this mansion. Like I feel like this mansion could be, you know, like a, an amusement park attraction somewhere. Like, you know, you go through Dan Aykroyd's Haunted Mansion or the Vulcanvania <laughs> Courts and Schools System building, and, you know, you just get into, like, wacky antics. <laughs> Essentially, it's like a funhouse. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, because like, that's that's the weird thing about talking about this movie, because like, I feel like, like a movie that has so much going on in it 
there's not a lot of substance here. Like, there's not like, like yes, we could like delve into the performances. Like, again, we have Chevy Chase who does not want to be there, mm-hmm. which, which oddly enough fits the film. Yeah. Because, like, <laughs> like, I knew that going into this, like, oh, Chevy Chase was a nightmare on the set of this. Like, he is and everything else he does in his life. And I'm like, oh, that works in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Like, I get so, he's so transparent that, like, on a personal level, he doesn't want to be here. And that it's actually translating to his character perfectly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yep. Then you have like Demi Moore, who's sitting there and just like she's playing your like your normal like heroine. Mm-hmm. Like like she she's doing like she's doing just fine. You have the Brazilian brother and sister, which they're they're pretty. They have their moments. They're pretty as the obnoxious couple. They're pretty interesting at times. Oh yeah, I I really like that they're the ones at the beginning of the movie where you know Chevy Chase runs the stop sign and then the the cop car comes after him, wanting him to pull over, and the Brazilian friends are like. You got a BMW, you can outrun the police. And he's like, okay, I'll outrun this cop. <laughs> <laughs> like that's like that's like a plot element that like makes no sense because he outruns the cops because there is no reason. Peer and pressure that, is the only thing you, you get from that. Is that because they're like, you have a fast car, and it's like, okay, I guess I do. Oh no, cop. Oh. Were you speeding? 65, that's the national speed limit. Well, not everywhere. It said 50 back there. 50? Why didn't you tell me? You don't have to stop. What? Right. Let's get out the guns and blow out his front tires. Are you crazy? Of course I'm gonna stop. He's a policeman. What are you talking about, dude? This is a provincial cop, man. With this car, you could easily get away from him. Let's see if we could do 90. You're kidding? This baby will do 130. Oh, so let's let's do it. Go, go, Chris. Thorn, for Christ's sakes, go. Go, man. You wimp chicken, let's go, hit it, push it. This is a little goddamn hamlet. Please go. Here we go. Then, like, because Demi Moore doesn't even, like, like, she just gives him, like, oh, God, disencouraging look. She's, like, like just giving him a look. She doesn't know. She ever tells him no. Mm-hmm. And then, like, they get, again, like, Chris, um, John Candy, I want to say Chris Farley. John Candy pulls him over, and he's, like, I'm willing to ignore the speeding violation if, like, you plead no contest. And then, like, it has no, it has no payoff. Like, yeah, the the judge never knows about the um the whole running from the police thing. It's only the stop sign violation. It's as if somebody told Dan Anquoid, wouldn't it be great if we had a car chase in this? Yeah, yeah. And exactly. he said it was why not? <laughs> we can show off some cop gadgets, it'll be perfect. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like it's an excuse just to sit there. Like he could very easily like you could because I know like that's another thing too that's kind of not fair for judging this movie, is that apparently Dan Anquoid had to cut some stuff out of it. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think it was it was gonna be like an R rating, and they couldn't have like an R rated forty million dollar film. And like, there's certain moments this that feel like, oh, like we cut something out of it. Yet at the same time, though, it's like, oh, why do you need that sequence of them having the police chase? Just have him get pulled over, be like, like make his snide Chevy Chase remarks, then be like, okay, unless you come with me, uh, like we're gonna have a problem. Like, just do that, like. Again, yeah. it, just, it feels like why is this here other than just like stroking somebody's ego? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have to agree. I definitely think you know 
there's something or maybe uh, a few things, maybe plot related or character related, I should say, that I've noticed in the times I've seen this, like the whole um, the whole history of like the coal fire and the mine that Vulcanvania sits on top of the coal mine. You know, because there's lines very early on, like briefly, where Chevy Chase will say something like, oh, my my money came from my family being in coal commodities. And then later on at the dinner scene, the justice is like, oh, this guy from New York City came and and wanted to start like this coal company and buy up this land. And it's like, oh, maybe they're trying to say that it's like Chevy Chase's family is the one that did this bad thing. And there's more of a relationship there. But the the final product of the film just cuts it down to you're a banker. No, I'm a financial publicist. Yeah, banker. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why the one part of the movie I I, I like that running gag. It's like every single time Chevy Chase is like, I didn't do anything. I ran a stop sign. Every time someone responds with, "You're also a banker, financial public <laughs> financial publisher." Like that was at least a funny running gag and all this. Everyone keeps calling him a banker. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, because I appreciate that joke. But then, like, even like the John Candy stuff is so weird. Like, like yes, he's playing dual roles as both the, the sister and the head constable. Mm-hmm. Yet, like, he disap- like as the constable disappears like halfway through the film. Yeah, because he, he he gets persuaded by the Brazilian couple to take a vacation, and then we don't see him for like thirty minutes, maybe even more. And then there's one shot of him packing a suitcase, <laughs> yep. which is so far. It's so much farther away from the from the Brazilians escaping. And then we see him at the very end when, you know, there's the expositional dialogue or I guess the wrapping up dialogue where, you know, um, the the Fausto is like, oh, it's like now that you're my head of security and my sister's lover, you're going to be living the good life here in Brazil. <laughs> and it's like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, like that's it's such a weird like. As if they've forgotten, like, oh, crap, we need a scene concluding all this. Yeah, yeah, just throw it in real quick. <laughs> yeah, like, that's that's so weird about this movie. It's like, it really is, like, a true cinemati in that sense, because, like, nothing makes sense in this movie. Yes, and, that's a good but, way like, to put it. But not, like, again, like we've said before, it's like, like yes, there's movies out there, just they're, they're made not to make sense. Like, we're not saying that, though. But, like, it feels like somebody had an idea, but just never knew how to, like, follow it through to its, like, logical conclusion. Yes, yeah, yeah. They don't know how to follow it through and they don't know how to end it either. (laughs) It's like the only reason why there's an ending to this is because like, oh, we need an ending. We just can't keep it going. Yeah, yeah. The movie just kind of rambles at a certain point. (laughs) And that's what it comes down to because like basically we get to the point where I think it's when him and uh, Chevy Chase and Demi Moore like are in the bedroom. They're like sleeping in the bed. The bed rotates three times. Yeah, yeah. Do, do we even know who, is that? Is that the sister doing that, or the daughter? That's the how I, I, yeah, I took it. Um, so yeah, Eldona, the John Candy m- plays a mute female, <laughs> who's the granddaughter of Dan Aykroyd's Justice of the Peace. Because yeah, there's that scene where they're like laying in Chevy Chase and Demi Moore are laying in bed together, and it shows the eyes, like the painting in the room that has hot has real human eyes like someone's looking through it and the painting looks like it's john candy almost yeah and then the bed then the bed starts to rotate and that's how i've always taken it is that the sister is watching chevy chase because she's interested in him and then sees him in bed with demi moore and so makes the bed just rotate and you know it plays the (laughs) which serves no purpose other than let's just have a gag of the bed rotating yep and then the door opens for seemingly no point either also and, and they start opening they even start it's also even felt like a quasi form of beetlejuice because they're opening different doors in the hallway and there's all these different like sight gags 
in these like different things down the doorways, like in Beetlejuice, where it's what um, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin are like, oh, like when they're going through like all different offices and what the Department yeah. of Paranormal, whatever it is, and it felt like that. And then like, oh, they go into a room and like all these like booby traps. Like at one point, like an anvil rolls over like a trap door mm-hmm. and they're stuck. But then like they're in this room and they see obviously that like like Danny Aykroyd's Justice of the Peace is like captured all these like notorious criminals over the years, like from oh god, what's his name? The guy who they that was buried, well, supposedly buried under uh, ju- the old giant stadium. Oh, Jimmy Hoffa? Jim, uh, Jimmy Hoffa. Like, all yeah, these different, like, yeah, they had to throw that in here. They, what happened to Jimmy Hoffa? And it's like, oh, he was, uh, you know, stopped in, in this random town and was killed for probably a traffic violation. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, oh, like, like that's at least a fun little, like, moment full of gags. And him and Demi Moore kind of sitting there. And, like, then, like, a, like another trap door opens. I know when they start going down. And they get caught, like, through two different shoots. And she ends up outside with the two, like, uh, uh, grotesque adult babies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, guess, I guess before we get too far away from it, uh, the, the best way, I, the best probably synopsis for this film revolves around that scene with all the driver's licenses oh, and the yeah. newspaper clippings. Like, I think the only, the closest thing the plot to a plot that this film has is that there is a judge in this, you know, kind of out-of-the-way town that just executes people for anything. And that's it. That's that's like the closest thing we have to a plot. <laughs> yeah, and like, and that's where it's like very Texas Chainsaw Massacre esque. It's like, okay, you have this family that lives in the boonies, and anytime somebody crosses their path, they're killed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because yep. even like kind of like insinuate that like the judges like he loves hot dogs. That the hot dogs are made out of the victims that are the people he sentenced to death. Yeah, from the bone stripper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's where it's like, oh, okay. Again, you have that element of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in there, and that's where like the plot of this is like, it feels like like a story that last. Like I think it was like uh, you probably know at this point too. Is the like apparently who was it? Was it Dan Aykroyd's brother went to like a town and they got like a speeding ticket, and it was like like a like a very realistic version of this. Where like oh, it was like this justice of the peace in the middle of nowhere, and it's like it's a clever idea. It's a, it's a it's a really good like. Twilight Zone premise. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it can sustain maybe like a thirty-minute like story, but like <laughs> this is not a ninety-minute movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. You know, it feels like it could be be condensed down into a Tales from the Dark Side esque uh, story. You know, half an hour, twenty-five minutes, or whatever. Yeah, it, it's a vignette. It's not a feature-length story. Yeah, and to make it a feature-length story, that's where we have to add the things like Zach said. You know, we have the grotesque giant babies that Demi Moore ends up, you know, playing cards with. <laughs> Which I gotta say, like, have, like all the actors in this, like she, I gotta say, she's trying the most. Oh yeah, and it's noticeable. Except for Dan Aykroyd, like, like Dan Aykroyd aside, she is trying the most because like John Candy sleepwalking through this, mm-hmm. Chevy Chase is just like being an a-hole. And like even the, the Brazilian brother and sister, like, like they're doing their shtick. Like so, yeah. but like again, it's a shtick. Like, like you know how to do your shtick. You're not trying if you're just doing your normal routine. And it's like, oh, okay. Because then like like the only character I can't figure out is the other like constable, the female constable. Yeah, she doesn't have too much of a I th- I feel like they were writing this movie with John Candy as the only police officer. And then when they got the idea, when they didn't say no to the idea that he's going to leave the movie halfway through, they were going to be like, oh, 
who's going to have picked up the digital underground for speeding in a hearse? And it's like, okay, we need another police officer. That's also going to be the Justice of the Peace's granddaughter, but look nothing like anybody else in this family. Oh, is she part of the family? I think so, because she calls she calls the judge grandpa a few times. Oh, I didn't even I, pick up on that. I think everybody in this mansion is related. <laughs> yeah, I could believe that. <laughs> That's the thing about this movie. Is like, it's a lot of sight gags, and unless, like, again, without us like repeating the jokes. Like, oh, actually, sure, go, sure. Like, going back to Demi Moore, it's like, she, like when she's playing like cards with. Uh, Bobo, and what's the other one's name? Little Lil Devil. Little Devil. Like Devil, but with a B. <laughs> oh, Devil, okay. Like when she's playing cards with him, like that's at least entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. But like they're going back to the thing about like, oh, what did Dan Ancroyd have to cut out of this? It feels like there's a portion of this, like where between her playing with them, and then like when she gets like sentenced to death by the snow plows, like the three snow plows on like oh, yeah. a gantz, like, 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 like a lever to drop in like cutter in threes it's like oh it feels like there's something missing there yeah 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 it just kind of goes you know and it's that's i think that's when you know for me it starts to ramble because it's all just like what is happening now because you know they get that machine out of nowhere and they cut up some watermelons with it and then they're like okay we're gonna you know gotta get the banker or for his girlfriend because he doesn't want to marry the woman john candy and oh yeah it's just all over the place yeah, and that's why, like, even like with the the Brazilian brother and sister, it's like, oh, it feels like there's more there. Like that's why that one scene with John Candy like packing his suitcase feels so out of place because it seems like because he seems like disenfranchised and dejected. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, maybe there was a sequence where he like confronts Dan Aykroyd, Justice of the Peace, and it's like, oh, then there's that moment where it's like, oh, you know what, boy, you're cut out for my will. Because at that point, remember, he t- at one point. John Candy, the constable, says, like, oh, I'm going to inherit all this one day. Yes. And the next thing we know, he's, like, uh, Dan Ancroyd's telling Chevy Chase, oh, boy, you know, you can inherit my fortune one day. Oh, that's a good point. Maybe some scene where after he catches the Brazilians, John Candy catches the Brazilians as they're escaping, he, like, goes back to get be ready to turn them in or something, and then him and Dan Ancroyd have, like, a, a little fight or something, and like you said, he gets kicked out of the will, and that's his motivation to... To leave. leave with the Brazilians. Yeah, okay, okay. That would make Cause sense. Because <laughs> it, it feels like there's more to this that's like just being cut out. Because like, then we go like, because I think it's more from like the second half. Because you have like, oh, the dinner scene, the Brazilian couple run away, John Candy catches them. Then we have like the weird moments where, okay, Demi Moore and Chevy Chase are in bed. And then we mm. have like, oh, he's getting married. Then Digital Underground shows up. And we have like the music, like the dance number that comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, we get and a musical like, performance. <laughs> yeah, like you know, it's a fun, it's a fun scene. It's like, oh, like it becomes like a string of things happening. Yeah, yeah, because the and first it's just half, kind of like, how do we like? Where is this going? Come on, because <laughs> like in the first half, there is a decent amount of setup, and then like by the second half, all those strands are left just dangling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why I'm inclined to believe probably most of the stuff that was cut out of this is probably from that second half. Okay, so so do we need uh do we need to start calling for um like the the full cut or the Ackroyd cut of nothing but trouble? Because we need to get on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> release the Ancroyd cut And it works because it's also Warner Brothers We can do like release the Ancroyd slash Snyder cut It can be all in one tweet <laughs> Okay right on Here's our list of demands Warner Brothers <laughs> We want all these different cuts of films Yes yeah absolutely Yeah so I have to agree I did, I did like the uh, musical performance I thought that was fun um, 
you know, I think the 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 actual song is is pretty good. I love that organ that Dan Aykroyd plays, you know, in the movie as the Justice of the Peace. That's a really interesting sound. Uh, we get to see Tupac in his his film debut, right? This is the first movie he was ever in, I believe. Yeah, according to Internet Legend, it is. That's interesting. You know, that's a that's a, a trivia question at some some bar in a college town, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's the weird thing, though. It's like, even though I'm not thrilled with this, I feel like it will... It, it kind of reminds me of a lot of, like, what Freaked was to me the first time I watched it, where it was like, oh, this is weird, but, like, it's just so weird for me to kind of, like, latch on to. And then, like, as we've already discussed, like, last month's over, like, it took me, like, eight years to finally kind of, like, appreciate Freaked as the masterpiece that it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that will eventually happen with this for me where it's like okay. oh if I, if I watch it enough times i will eventually be able to like latch on to it but it's kind of a shame that like even though i'm not thrilled with this as of now that the only reason why people talk about this movie is like oh this is like can you believe that this was tupac shakur's like cinematic mm. debut Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. like like this movie is so weird it has so much imagination in it for better or worse yet that's the thing people remember this movie for is because a deceased rapper had their first film appearance in this and like don't get me wrong like that's an interesting like tidbit of trivia mm-hmm. but like to let that be the legacy of this is a sh- is like you're robbing this film of its own like creative identity if that's the only thing that can be remembered for yeah yeah i have to i have to agree with you there you know because like you said the there's so much to see it's so dense and, you know, the setting of this movie, I think that that's what really, you know, gets it for me, of course. But but you're right. You're right. You know, it's that little factoid, you know, and he's he's not even in it for that much. Uh, you get more of uh, the rest of the digital underground. But but yeah, it's a bummer. And I'm surprised that this doesn't get more traction just because of, you know, Dan Aykroyd, it being his only, you know, the only film he directed and and kind of just have for how, you know, crazy Dan Aykroyd is as a person. You know, it's like I always hear. Those people who talk about when what's that? I think back in the day, like Ghostbusters came out, and someone interviewed Dan Aykroyd and was like, "Oh, like did you show it to your kids? What did they think of it?" And he was goes on this whole spiel about how it's like this is how he introduced his kids. Ghostbusters was the film that he introduced his kids and like told them that ghosts were real because apparently he's a big paranormal believer and stuff like that. I'm surprised I don't hear more of that aspect where it's like, "Oh, this this kind of insane creative guy made this one movie. Check it out for that reason." And then you can say that Tupac's in it. <laughs> yeah, like that's. But I think I have to say this: like this movie, like feels like too. I guess Danny Aykroyd's insane. First and foremost, I guess we should say that. But <laughs> two, it's the idea that like I don't know how. Like we'll get into this more of late night movie, but it's just the idea of like this movie is so inaccessible. Like mm-hmm. unless like you and I like weird stuff, and even we are kind of like, like like we appreciate it. But we don't love it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's a good way to put it. I saw a story with Dan Anacoid recently, and he said, I forget what it was. Like, he was saying something like aliens are having sex with like, Amer- like uh, human women. <laughs> was he talking about under the skin? <laughs> Maybe. But he reversed like, the uh, the gender swapped under the skin. <laughs> yeah, pretty much though. But like, that's the sort of stuff like he's known for now. Mm-hmm. Like, he's known for being like a, like a crazed conspiracy theorist, and that's why like he gets like ignored by most people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He said this ten day. This is ten days ago as of recording this. Oh wow! Dan Ancroyd says aliens in here and they want sex with human women. <laughs> that's a legit headline. 
The actor says he's seen four UFOs and that most extraterrestrials who pop up on Earth are just tourists coming to look at this beautiful planet. However, the star is concerned that some aliens want to harm people and use them as lab rats. And Dan is convinced that 60% of us already know it's true. He told the Daily Star the proof is going to start dribbling out. Aliens are interested in your ova, your femininity, your reproductive parts, your DNA. They would love Damn. to draw blood and fluid And they'd love to impregnate a woman And produce a hybrid baby This is what they're up to here I believe some aliens are here to harm us they are, There are many that come here with nefarious purposes And want to use us as lab rats That's such a strange way to word that Like they would love to take blood and fluids Like that's such a strange phrasing for that <laughs> Yeah like that's And that's the sad thing That's what Dan Aykroyd's known as now Like he's known as like Mr. Like, like I think he's like, like Larry King a couple of times In the last like decade plus and it's just him, like, kind of, like, spouting this, like, conspiracy theory stuff. They only land in isolated places. They have taken people, I believe. They do have technology. Lord Hill Norton of the uh, British Defense Staff well, said uh, that he York? believed tw 23 people, 23 different species are coming because they don't want anything to do with us. I don't think we will ever have a formal relationship, a formal contact with any alien species out there, especially after 9-11, when we broke our toys in the sandbox. If they were observing that, goodbye human race. And uh, honestly, I don't think they're a mass threat, but I do believe they're breaking the law. I'm serious. Title 18, 1202, okay. read the Travis Walton story. So how do you arrest them? Uh, that's the thing. The FBI should be on that right away. I don't think they're a mass threat. If you want to save lives in this country, teach people to drive better, remove the cocaine appetite in the United States, and stop people from texting while driving. That's the way to save lives. <laughs> now we're try I look to... at this. I look Go at this on. through the entertainment filter, Larry. That's why I gather I'm here. that. <laughs> I think he has what, like his own tequila or is it vodka Vo uh, yeah i think it's vodka it's the crystal skull vodka yeah anybody, when they go into the liquor store i think it's one of the you know it's a unique bottle because it's a giant skull uh i tried it once and it tasted like cleaning product it was not oh, really great yes and I'm, I'm i'm not against vodka vodka's not you know it's not my favorite but i don't hate it i'm not one of those people who's like oh i can't drink vodka it's disgusting but this vodka tasted like straight up cleaning product it was not a good time <laughs> Yeah, so like that's the thing about this is that like, uh, like especially like we talk about things like oh will elves ever get like the recognition it deserves? This is kind of the weird like almost like it's in the same level as an elves I think like in the same sense like people in our oh god what you call our corner of the film mm -hmm. like film enthusiast community know about it though. But like this movie should have so much more, like, I don't want to call it claim, but notoriety. Because again, it's like you have Chevy Chase, Demi Moore, John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, and you do have like those weird little tidbits of other people in this. But like, like that's why, like I remember in that like video, like the person's like, oh, like how on earth does like this get a forty million dollar budget? And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, very easily. You have Dan Aykroyd, who like in the, within the last like. 10 years has made Ghostbusters Blues Brothers is still like part of that like SNL click you have Chevy Chase who's a, still a big name Demi Moore is like just now a household name because of Ghost mm -hmm. you have John Candy who's like at this point was still like up and coming but people knew who he was and it's like oh they want to make a comedy together it's like of course you write them a blank check yeah, yeah. That, like I said, when I found, you know, this DVD in my roommate's box of DVDs, I was like, wow, how have I never heard about this? Then you watch it and you're like, oh, that's why. Yeah, I, I, it all makes sense now. <laughs> and that's what I mean. Like, like we're, we're, we are cinematis and we are even having a hard time kind of forget about evangelizing about it. It's even discussing it.
Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and that's where, like, that's where, like, it's weird. Like, we talk about like weird movies on here all the time. Yeah, you know, like certain weird movies are much easier to discuss than others. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because like you can tell, like based on our conversations, where you can tell certain movies had an idea, like had like a very firm spine or bedrock to them. And then you have other movies, like again, we have like our Cat in the Hat or Vox Lux, where it's like, oh, there's something that the filmmaker was trying to say, they just didn't know how to do it properly. And then you have things like Gods of Egypt and Nothing But Trouble, where it's like there's a lot of like crazy spectacle on display. Mm-hmm. But that's where it kind of like begins and ends. Yeah, yeah. And that's just, and that's kind of the shame of this because like there is like like this would be a great movie to have in high definition and just pause certain frames of it and just like look at the background like especially the like the, the newspaper clippings in the like, driver's licenses like room like that to be a great room to kind of like pause and see all the things in that like set and then that's it like there's nothing else like, like what's what's the what's the theme of nothing but trouble like what's the thematic like drive of this movie. Oh, that's a good question, and I uh, very loosely, I I imagine, or what I've come to think of it as is, you know, um, uh, maybe something about, like, uh, the class system, where, you know, like, the people who are rich and live in the city think that, you know, they're entitled, like, Chevy Chase tries to bribe the cop, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's always trying to get out of things. But then it's like, you know, these these people who are viewed by the city folk as a lower class because, you know, they live in the middle of nowhere – you know, they really have the power out there. So something something like class system versus location, maybe? <laughs> the fancy correct rich answer people is... are afraid that non-fancy, non-rich people are going to be angry at them for being fancy and rich, maybe? <laughs> the correct answer is none of the above. None of the above, yep. <laughs> that, but, like, that's what I mean, though. It's like, like we, you can impose a meaning on to this. Sure, yeah. But I do not see a clear-cut, like, oh... This I mean, I'm not saying that every movie needs a vision like that, but it's like oh, it's just spectacle. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like it's like oh, let's have fun making this. Like this felt like a movie probably was a lot of fun to make. Yeah, but like and I think that's probably why someone like Chevy Chase, who's so full of himself, can't like compartmentalize. Like oh, I make certain movies for a different reason, and, and that's not to say I don't think Chevy Chase ever made high art, but just the whole idea like oh, I don't think Chevy Chase can stand a bunch of people having fun. Okay. Okay. I, I think I think that's kind of like part of the ego thing. It's like like oh, I'm Mr. High and Mighty actor. Like a bunch of people just having like goofing off making a movie, and like in that, and it's like that's that's below me. And I oh, think that's, sure. But at the same time, like I think that's weird. Like there's no purpose to this. It's just people having a good time. Yep, and, and just it, taking every idea that comes through their heads. Yep. Yeah, and that's where it does feel like something like in a weird way you can make a comparison to today's like blockbusters. It's like. It's it's like I'm, you're never bored watching this, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it's kind of like eating a bag of popcorn. It's like, yeah, like I, I kept myself occupied for ninety minutes, <laughs> but I kind of don't feel anything afterwards. Like, oh wait, like like yes, you could point to specific scenes. Like, oh, the scene with the again, oh, I'm trying to, think. I, I, I'm not having a hard time doing it now. It's like, oh, remember that scene when this happened? But mm-hmm. like. I'd just be naming a scene for the sake of a scene. Whereas, like, we go back to Freaked and at numerous times now, even Rob and I have quoted the line, Well, I'm sure glad that wasn't our plane. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> like, you can feel when, like, again, and Freaked is very much a spectacle movie because a lot of it's just weird stuff happening. Yeah. Look at our t- costumes. Look at our animations. You know, isn't this bonkers type of thing? Yeah. Like, whereas, like, but Freaked feels like it has a soul. Mm, mm-hmm. This does not feel like it has a soul. 
yeah, we don't get a scene of in uh, Nothing But Trouble. We never get a scene where the grotesque babies uh, recite Shakespeare like we do in Freaked, you know, which really adds to the depth of Freaked. <laughs> yeah, but like, but there is like, there's that level of sentimentality. Yeah, yeah. In 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 a Freaked, or even like in a Cat in a Hat, where like I think it's almost like the antithesis of that in Cat in a Hat, where like there's like an anti sentimentality where it's like, oh, like there's like there's schmaltz. Mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm. there's like there's like a sh- layer of schmaltz in the cat in the hat that's not really appropriate, but it like it's the glue that holds that film together. Whereas yeah. in this, though, like everybody, like this is a very cynical film. Nothing but trouble. Definitely, and it's like almost too cynical for its own good. Yeah, there's no one. No one really is. You know, maybe Demi Moore would be the closest thing we have to like a good guy type of thing. You know, that's what I mean. There's nobody to like latch on to because like you start with Freaked. And like Ricky's a jerk, but over the course of the film, Ricky learns how to be a good person. Yes, yes. And over the course of this, Chevy Chase, Chevy Chase is a jerk, and by the end of the film, Chevy Chase is still a jerk. Yeah, he's he just, like he just gets the girl. There's no, there's no like um, learning or growing from this experience. He just gets what he wanted, which at the because at the very beginning, it's like, oh, I'm gonna drive you to this meeting. Cause I, cause I want to be with you, you know. At the end of the movie, he's like you said, he's still a jerk, but now they're in an apartment together. <laughs> Yeah, but like he doesn't even seem that concerned about her. It's not until even like very beginning of the film when he's like going out to the uh, the doorman and oh, it's yeah. like and he's like hung over. He's like, tell her I can't do this. Then like she comes out like wearing like a short skirt and it's like feeling better now, sir. Yeah, and like yeah, it's it's like again, it's funny. I feel like Chevy Chase's character arc in this is exactly what happened to Chevy Chase while making this. He was inconvenienced <laughs> for a certain amount of time. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And that's what I mean though. So like that, that there's really nothing to like again, and every other character in this is for the most part unlikable, or like you already said, Demi Moore is like the most tolerable. Mm, yeah, tol- yeah not tolerable is a good way to put it. Yep, yep. And we don't even know what's even going on with her character. Because at the beginning, obviously the very beginning of the film is she like grabs the thing, like the piece of paperwork out of his like hand in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And like she starts complaining. She wants to go to Atlantic City. And it doesn't even make sense either. Because like why like, she can afford like a high rise apartment. Yet she doesn't have a way to get to Atlantic City. Yeah. <laughs> she, she can't hire a car. Like she works for a law firm. It's like you're telling me they wouldn't even charter her like, like a uh, car service yeah exactly there's got to be a driver she knows yep yeah that's what i mean though so like it doesn't make any sense oh yeah yeah <laughs> there's even like too like a really weird like continuity error i don't know if it's a continuity error because like she comes out of like after chevy chase is like oh i'm too hung over the drive she comes down the elevator and we see like obviously like, like her him and the doorman are like looking at her outfit and she gets into the passenger side of the car and like like i don't know if it's like a skirt or her dress like starts to ride up her leg and they're like and, like the doorman gives like chevy chase like a winky notion then mm-hmm. like for the rest of the movie demi moore's like wearing shorts yes yeah yeah and i'm like was that a continuity error did she change somewhere along the line because <laughs> make a very big point of her wearing like a skirt or a short dress and it becomes shorts halfway through the movie yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like like that's a weird like, like i, I kind of like that it's like a disorienting detail mm-hmm but like I can't help but feel it was like the idea like halfway through filming, she probably was running around and either felt like uncomfortable or it was just getting annoying for her to be like running around like in a like something that was like confining her legs too much. Sure. And sure. it's like, oh, okay then. Like it's not a big detail, but like it's just one of those things like I wouldn't have noticed it if you didn't harp on it so much as like like a very specific moment early yeah. on in the film. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm but, not uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, it's like many things in this film, we're not sure. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and even like Dan Ancroyd's character, it's like like he's fun to watch, but he's not a likable character. Like he's more of like he's an annoying. Char- he's almost like a um. Oh gosh, he's he's like he's like a Bugs Bunny almost. Mm-hmm. Like he keeps outsmarting. Like I get, it feels like him and Chevy Chase are like Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. <laughs> and at the end of the day, neither was particularly likable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I don't even find. I mean, I like the um the justice of the peace character just because of some of the crazy things he says. And like the way he says some things like the dinner scene, when he's just like sitting at the head of the table and he's screaming at all the people, he's like, get yourself some dogs like that. That just sounds so interesting to me. Here's how I like them. And I suggest you have them the same way. And that when he first gets introduced and he's just like, you know, talking very quickly, going through like the the court proceedings or whatever, like when they first show up in the mansion and he's saying stuff like he says something like, look, who's got keys to the Mexican hat dance now, like spiders in a cake. And it's just like some of the lines are just absolutely baffling. Revolving district court for the village and shire of Alconvania is now in order. The Honorable Reeve. Alvin Vulcanizer presides. Dennis, give me their licenses, ID, toll tickets, report cards, notes from the teacher. There you go, Judge. Traffic violation. Contravention of Village Bylaw 23, failing in the execution of a full stop at a place so marked, I recommend fine bond and release. What else you want to do for them? Bake them a pie? Oh. Who's Christopher Lawrence Thorne? That's me, Your Honor. Thorne Financial Publishing, Water Street, New York. Okay. Banker? No, no, no banker, no. Financial publishing. Thorns Weekly? Okay, banker. Oh, here. Well, look at this. Passports. I will have you know that my brother, Fausto, and I enjoy diplomatic immunity in this country. Okay, well, uh, and you are the Fausto and Rinalda Squirini... Where is she? She's we. She's we? Friends of the bride. Yeah, that's right. We all want to get married. No, sir. No wedding. Moving violation. Failure to stop. Let's just be quiet and let him do his little thing and we'll be on our way. Oh, I will let you be on your way. And when you go, the cat's eyes will spin. Now listen. Okay. We'll listen. Hey, hey, ho, ha, ho! <laughs> hula, 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 the bula, bula, bula! Look who's got the front seats of the Mexican hat dance now! Just like a bunch of spiders in a birthday cake! You might be interested to know that you are not under the jurisdiction of just any old fishing license dispenser and stamp pad jockey. We've always been set to deal with the offenders 
once and for all at their first appearance. Quick as something to a ten-year-old goose. Congratulations. I'm glad to know things are running smoothly for you. Put out that dog rocket! Oh, sir, sorry. In 1796, my forefathers established this seat after the tenants of the old Shire Charter. Shire Charter? Excuse me, sir, that's pre-magna carta. I mean, serfdom and fiefdom stuff. Very good, young lady. Hey, you know, you and I ought to spend a little more time together. Well, I'd, I'd like that. Would you? Well, and more on how they packed me off to Farmers Mechanics University in Gracefield, Ohio, for my engineering degree. <laughs> and how I fought the Germans in World War I later. But for now... Later? Wait, ho, 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 no later. Wait a minute, what is this shit? Sir, no cussing in court. We don't want to hear the story of your life. We just want to pay the ticket and get the hell out of here. I'm sorry, Judge. Well, look at him. He's going on and on. This court herewith binds you over for a further appearance to be held at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. We so deem for the public and common good that you be confined herein. So for now... Good night, Ari! Even when he's, um, because he plays Bobo, one of the uh, grotesque babies as well, and there's the scene where he, like, introduces them, and he's like, I'm Bobo, and that's Little Devil. And it's just, like, these little bits of his performance. I really like the way he says things. Hi, I'm Bobo. That's Little Devil. Hi, we're not allowed in the house. But that's it. That's that's the, all it goes. You know, I don't I don't want to look at his old man, you know, penis-nosed face for too long. I don't want to look at the grotesque babies for too long. I think it's like seeing them run in some scenes of this movie and their, like, fat suit is just jiggling all over the place. Like, some of that's just really, you know, body horror-ish, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> but, like, like, it's a good point you, you, you bring up, like, the penis nose. Because I know, like in, like, in, like, one or two shots, and I do a close-up of that, they deliberately made it more phallus Yes, yeah. And I can't help but, like, think back to like when we discussed uh, Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau with like mm-hmm. Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando. It's like, w- is this an example, this movie of actors being in charge, just being like, I'm going to show the studio who's boss. Mm. Like I remember, how we, I remember that movie is at the line of dialogue where like, I think it's like something about like Marlon Brando's like, let's F over the studio. Yes. Yeah, and I wonder yeah. if that's just an example of this being like an exercise and just like how far can we go? Oh, interesting thought. And that's why I feel like it's because like it feels like 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 if you're like an like an actor, first time filmmaker, and like Dan Aykroyd's always had his fingers in the pie from like a production angle, whether it be like mm-hmm. Ghostbusters, Saturday Night Live, like Blues Brothers. I have to wonder how much of this is just like actor vanity. In narcissism being like, let's just see how, like, I want to do something absolutely crazy where nobody tells me no. And -hmm. let's see where will they draw a line? Because that's what it feels like. Because, like, even like I've read stuff, like, Dan Ancourt doesn't even talk about this anymore. Oh, like when okay. people like when people do bring it up to him, he refuses to acknowledge it. It's nothing but trouble. He'll only, he'll only call it Vulcanvania, which is like, which was the original title of it. And I wonder if this is just like an exercise in like, how much can I get away with? Yeah, like, yeah. It, it's kind of like the idea of like, let's say you are somebody like I don't know, like anybody, any sort of craft that has to work within like a certain range or like a budget. And then mm-hmm. like you're like you have just enough clout 
you figure, you know what, I'm going to blow all my clout on just doing whatever I want. And let's and maybe it's not like in, in a Marlon Brando sense where it's not like in malice. Let's just say like I'm just going to sit there, convince somebody who has money to give me as much of it as possible to just do anything I want with it. Okay. That's what I, okay. I wonder if it's I wonder if it's just maybe just an exercise and excess. Yeah. Maybe there, maybe there is no point to this movie. It's just an exercise of excess. And maybe that's when like Chevy Chase goes out there and sees all this. And considering that Chevy Chase is kind of like uh, just I don't want I don't want to say he's a no nonsense guy, but he's kind of like a stick in the mud as a human being. Is like he sees this and just like throws his hands up in the air and is like whatever. Why like, am I'm I involved not, in this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if no one's gonna, like, if no one's going to take this seriously, why am I here? Mm, okay, because okay. he said I see a couple of things like he only like got involved with this as like a personal favor to Dan Aykroyd because he was his friend. Ah, interesting. And that's where like, you can imagine like one day like Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase are having like drinks one night, and like Dan Aykroyd's like, "Yo, Chevy, like I've got Warner Brothers lined up for this like insane project. You want to just like get a paycheck for like, goofing off for like two months straight?" And then, like, Chevy's like, sure, it sounds like a good time. Then, like, 30 days, like, a week into this, he's like, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> like, like, some people do like structure. So, like, like, once you, like, there is none of that whatsoever, it's like, it's just like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. where you hear story. Like, there was, like, some stories that, like, oh, like, Chevy Chase was, like, very, like, disapproving of like the outfit Demi Moore was wearing in this and thought it was like too revealing. Okay. It's like, and that's why I mean, maybe that's his form of trying to put some structure into this. And that's why he became a, like he really became a stick in the mud. Like, I don't know. Like the more and more I think about this movie, it feels like, again, Alex winter had something, not that he had something to say, but like there was a point to freak. Yes. Like the cat in the hat is weird as it may be. And to a degree, it isn't exercise in excess. It feels like at least somebody's interpretation of what a live action version of that, like children's book might look like. Yeah. This just yeah. feels like an exercise in excess at the end of the day. I like that. I like that uh, phrase exercise in excess as the genre for this movie. And I would love to like see other movies, which I'm sure we've watched some of, or I've seen some of at least that also fall into that genre because it seems like the exercise and excess always come out being something very much like a cinemodity right i can't even think of another example though like i know yeah nothing nothing comes to my head um but you know other than maybe you know the the island of dr moreau and the marlon brando stuff from but but the from thing what we about, heard in there the little bit of it but the thing about those like marlon brando wasn't the creative drive on that though mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like he didn't go to like a movie studio. It's like, I have this idea. I have the actors attached to it. Let's do it. Like it, it, he came in like after the fact, it's like, he tried to sit there, like throw a wrench into the machine. Yes. Okay. That's yeah. That's what he was trying to do. I can't think of the last time, like, I don't want to call Dan Ancroyd not tour, but like somebody with a, like has like a creative signature mm-hmm. or is distinguished creatively. Because he does have like clout, like he did Ghostbusters. He did at that point. He had two Ghostbusters movies that made like a ton of money. Mm-hmm. You have Blues Brothers. You know that's not really like a like it made money, but like it wasn't like Ghostbusters huge, but it still made a lot of money. And then, like him to go like, oh, I'm going to do this next. Like that's so weird because like I, he must have either been so arrogant or high on drugs that he realized that like, oh, if I do this, I'll never be given the opportunity to ever do it again. <laughs> yeah and that's yeah. where i feel like it's an exercise nexus it's like okay i'm only gonna get one shot at this i'm gonna be like okay let's get to twenty thousand toasters ah okay okay and i can't think of another it'd be the equivalent of like 
I, I guess the only other, again, exercise and excess or just exercise and doing whatever I want because I can. I think those mm-hmm. are two steps, even though like they sometimes go hand in hand. The only other example I can think of that is like someone like a George Lucas being like, I'm my own boss. I can do whatever I want. But at the same time, though, Dan Ancoy did have to uh, answer to someone. Like, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, you have people like saying, again, you have like your George Lucas is like, oh, I'm going to make Howard the Duck. And it's going to be as weird as I want it to be because I can do whatever I want. But at the same time, though, that's his money. So when he when it, when it goes down the drain, that's it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, it's like, oh, I can't. I honestly cannot think of another movie. Like even like your like your examples of like uh, Westworld or not. Oh, God, I said it again. Waterworld. Oh, okay. I, I, was always, to, I, always, I was about to be like, what? <laughs> I always get Waterworld and Westworld screwed up. But no, like, even like Kevin Costner's like Waterworld. Like even that like. There was a vision there. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine, like, I think there's, like, kind of thing, like, oh, why are we doing this on the ocean, considering that, like, making movies on, like, like open water is never a good idea. But at least it felt like there was a vision there. Sure. There sure. is no vision here. It's just stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With, like, with the tad, like, barest minimum of a plot holding it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're and right. I, and I think that's why, even, like, subconsciously, this movie has never clicked with even like a it's so bad it's good audience. Oh, okay, okay. Is that I there see is, that. that there's really nothing to even like cling to with this because it, fe- it feels like it's it's vacuous, it's void of any like meaning. Mm-hmm. And I don't even mean that like in a can't think of an example. It just feels like that's the reason why no one's ever found this as a movie is that there's nothing to it. It's just it's there. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and, and like we've been saying, you know, the thing that we really want to do with this movie is see more of it, is be able to pause the screen and, and take more of the setting in and things like that. And yeah, that's not a recipe for, you know, long-lasting cult classic or anything like that. Yeah, that doesn't get you to a Rocky Horror Picture Show where, like, 40 years later, people are still paying to see that in the theater, like, exactly. every like, three months. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, you're right. And that and that's why you, like, even something like Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, a... Uh, like a direct-to-video sequel for an obscure horror title has more of a following nowadays because, like, even though that movie like is absurd, it at least feels like the people making it were trying. Yes, like yes, they had absolutely. no money, they had no time. It's like, okay, we were given an opportunity to prove ourselves, and you know what, we're going to do our best to, to to show it. And it's like, oh, that at least is something. Yeah, this this had a thing about like what was this? I don't like Deadly Night had like what like a one point one million dollar budget, and this had forty times that. Yet somehow Garbage Day has more of a that one sequence has more going for it in a sense <laughs> of like for people to latch on to than all ninety minutes of this featuring to this day talent that still like gets people's attention like a Demi Moore, like yeah. a Chevy Chase, like a John Candy. Like it, that's so weird that like how all these obscure titles somehow have more resonance than a forty million dollar film starring a listers of the early or late eighties early nineties. Yeah, yeah, that that's an interesting way to think about it. You know, it's like uh, it's something you know, like a uh, to makes me think of you know you have either a few really you know maybe par on par maybe a little subpar quality ingredients. And you can do something with it, and it'll taste great. Or, you know, maybe it'll taste like uh, it gets something done, like Silent Night, Deadly Night, like the garbage day. You know, there's very little going on there, but it's great. It gets that notoriety. There's something with nothing but trouble where it's like, oh, we're just 
taking all of these ingredients, like all of these things seem like they'd be so good and we're going to mash them all together. And it all just kind of, you know, cancels itself out almost. And you get something that's almost, you know, empty. It's, it's vacuous. It's not nutritional at all. Yeah. Like it feels like it has no soul. Like it really, yep. like you watch this and again, like freaked freaked feels like there's something going on there. This it's like, again, not to go through another comparison though, but like, think about it. We could like do a poll and I would imagine more people have heard of Tommy Wiseau's the room than Dan Ancroyd's $40 million, nothing but trouble. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a and, good point. And I don't think it's an accident that one has resonated more with people than the other. Mm-hmm, Even definitely. though a lot of the reason why people like the rooms for like the ironic, it's so bad, it's good. But I think that's a reason. I think one is like, and I think this is almost you go into like a question of this, like kind of like what's going on now with movies. The idea of like, like whether a movie has a soul or not. Mm-hmm. Like what? Like, I don't mean that like in the sense of like, uh, like it has like sentimentality. I mean like, like what they're doing currently, even with like the the Sonic movie. Like the Sonic movie has a trailer. Like stupid man babies don't like it because it doesn't look like a, a, a real life version of a cartoon character. Yep. So like the studio panics and it's like, no, 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 we're gonna delay the movie by three months. Like pump thirty million more dollars into the movie to change the way a live version of a cartoon looks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think like in the process of making that, like making a decision, a creative decision like that, I think you're like robbing a movie of its soul or you are like trying to swap the soul out of the movie for like an artificially created one. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Definitely. And, I think, and when I say like, a, like, I think like any, like any sort of like creative endeavor, I think it, it has a soul that the artist or the creatives put into it. And mm-hmm. it's not something you can do. It's not like a heart transplant. You can't just like pull one out and place another one into it. It doesn't work that way. It gets created because it's just the, 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 between the intent and just the byproduct of the artistic process, just congealing together. And I think when your intent of something like this is that there is no intent, whether for malice, for what malice or not, mm-hmm. I think an audience subconsciously picks up on it. And that's why I think certain movies like, Oh God. Um, what's the last thing they tried doing that with the movie? Like justice league, Pac Snyder, Joss Whedon, like, Oh, one filmmaker goes in and it has a purpose, or it mm-hmm. had a purpose. Then another filmmaker comes in, tries to literally redo the movie down to like its core. And guess what? An audience can tell that even if no scenes are showing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like laugh as we may at Batman v Superman, in how just like serious and dour that movie is. It has a soul. I'm kind of getting the sense, uh, or at least when I think about what you're saying with soul, where it's like you know you can watch a movie. And whether or not you like it, you know, you can latch onto it and and kind of get buy into it to a certain extent, you know, whereas something lacking a soul is you watch it, maybe like nothing but trouble. And it's like, oh, OK, you know, you can't just throw a love interest and that'll have, you know, vacuous meaning. It has to be established and, and set in reality in some way. Um, it makes me think of I, I don't know why, but Pacific Rim, like Pacific Rim, I remember thinking that like the love aspect, like the um the little relationship that the main character had with the woman. I remember that feeling so forced like that. That's kind of what I'm thinking of. Like you don't have that soul. You don't have that connection to the audience, to the human, you know, human aspect of it. Yeah. But like, yes, I agree with you though, but I think that's a different avenue than where I'm looking at this. Okay. Because like, like I, like I was talking before about like an exercise and excess, I think I finally thought of an example and I think I have it with, um, Adam Sandler's Jack and Jill. Oh, it's, it's the idea of like people are going to give like like a studio 
or someone's going to give us money to make a movie and we're just going to spend it and have a good time. Geez, when you when you said when you had your little um, how you thought it went where Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase were just drinking one night and said, hey, do you want to do this for a paycheck? We'll get to goof off and have fun. That definitely should have made us think of Adam Sandler. You know, hey, the same people that are in every single one of my movies, you want another big paycheck to do nothing or do the same thing? What are they? Are they up to Grown Ups Eight yet? <laughs> well, now he now he has a deal. Like Sony finally cut him loose. Now he's like a Netflix thing, Adam Sandler. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I see that all that stuff on Netflix with him and Kevin James and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. David David Spade, Chris Rock, yeah. uh, Rob Schneider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good. That's a good one. Yep, that's a good yeah. point. Jack Jack and Jill is another like that type of. Like, I think it's the only thing I can think of now where it's like a filmmaker, and it's not even because Adam Sandler doesn't even direct it. Because I think it's like his normal like same person that directs all of his movies, whether it be like Mr. Deeds, Big Daddy, okay. Grown Ups. It's always like the same like two or three people that he gets along with, and that's what it's like. Okay, they're gonna give us. Like, I think. Okay, what was it? I think uh, Jack and Jill had like an eighty million dollar budget. Oh my god! And really? You that, yeah. <laughs> and you look at that movie, and it's like you can make this movie like as like like an independent film student. There's nothing in that movie that would cost even like a fraction of what he said it was. Never mind the insane amount of product placement in that movie that would like compensate for the budget. Yeah, I was about to say, isn't that isn't Jack and Jill the movie where Al Pacino does the Dunkin' Donuts commercial? Yeah, Dunkin' Chino. Dunkin' Oh, that's right. Oh, God. I have never seen that movie, but I remember hearing about it, and specifically that part, and I was just like... Something's brewing at D&D. Wow! Al Pacino! It's not Al anymore! It's Dunk! Dunkin' Chino? Don't mind if I do! What's my name? Dunkin' Chino! It's a whole new game! Dunkin' Chino! You want creamy goodness? I'm your friend! Say hello to my chocolate blend. Attica, who are light. This whole trial is out of sight. They pull me back in with hazelnut too. Caramel swirl, I know it was you. Everyone wants my Dunkachino. Can't get enough of my Dunkachino. Kids from 7 to 17 lining up for my Dunkachino. What's my name? Dunkachino. Dunkachino. Man, that seems like a train wreck. <laughs> like that's that might be like, like another uh, series on cinema oddities, like like a void of soul cinema. Yeah, like, like vacuous yeah. cinema. Like that would be like like that'd be like like a, a series we might do, like vacuous cinema, and that would be one where it's like this movie has no point other than just making the filmmakers and the actors money. It's not mm. here to entertain you. It's to dupe a certain amount of people into the theater to buy enough tickets so they can do it another time. Yeah, it's yep. it's like it's like a cinematic version of a Ponzi scheme. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just to dupe your your what you call it, the oh god what's it called your mark just enough that they give you enough money that gives you enough money to move on to the next like con. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely, and that's and that's what it is. And I feel like this was the equivalent of that, except at least Dan Aykroyd I think had a little bit more of a a vision. Or at least yeah. he wanted, like his version of a good time wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get David Spade a seven-figure paycheck. It was, with this money, I'm going to do something I can never do any other way. Yeah, good point, good point. It's a matter of priorities. Like David, Dan Ancourt's priorities are much different than that. Like Adam Sandler doesn't have a creative bone in his body anymore. Or Dan Ancourt, I think I think if somebody gave Dan Ancourt another $80 million or $40 million, I think he probably would try to do something again like this. Mm-hmm. 
But again, like it's like the same thing. If we gave Adam Sandler another eighty million dollars, all he would do is use it as an excuse to give it to Kevin James and Chris Rock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, nothing but trouble. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a vacuous <laughs> film, but it's definitely a Pearson Lottie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess, I guess now with uh, more of the philosophical stuff discussed. Um, I wanted to get into some of the things that I, I picked up on in this last viewing and, and some that I've always picked up on, some of the tinier details uh, that I really do enjoy about it. So are you ready for that, Zach, or do you have more philosophical musings to discuss? <laughs> no, no more philosophical. I'm buckled in now for uh, regular movie talk. All right. So so I, I, I'm going to start with one that I think goes back into something you said maybe a few minutes ago um, with uh, Chevy Chase, you know, trying to uh, maybe have some control or bleed into uh, this this film. Do you think it was his choice, Chevy Chase's choice, that his character in the movie would have a seemingly endless amount of cigars on his person? <laughs> Did you pick up on this? That he has like six cigars throughout this movie while they're in the mansion. Like there's even the scene where he like, there's two, he gives one to Demi Moore in the, in the, uh, driver's oh, yeah. license room. Did you pick up on that? <laughs> yeah, I noticed he had a couple of cigars. I didn't know it was actually six. Um, and there's, they're they're big cigars. They're not like you know uh, any any like just small black and milds or anything. They're full cigars. So yeah, that would take up. Yeah, that would take up space on his person. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that sounds like a Dan Aykroyd gag. That sounds okay. like what, it's like Chevy. Wouldn't it be funny that throughout the entire movie, all you do is pull cigars out of your coat, like your coat pocket? That's okay, the, okay. That's like the same person that would say, "Let's have like a like a thirty foot high mound of toasters." Would say, "Wouldn't it be funny?" Is like every single time you have a down moment in this film, you pull a cigar out of your uh, jacket pocket. Because even like when they're first being confronted by uh, the Justice of the Peace, toward the end of that whole exchange, he just pulls out a cigar and starts smoking it, and to be more gives him a look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah, I think there's another one. I know there's the two in the driver's license room. I think there's another one when they get put in, Demi Moore and him get put in the room together, and she's crying about not uh, picking men correctly or something like that. And then I, th I think there's one more maybe when he's, like, trying to leave or something like that. Or, no, he uses the lighter to light his little uh, bar oil barrels and fire yes. at the end. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I just that last time this last time I watched it, I picked up on that. And I'm like, man, where are these cigars coming from? <laughs> yeah, it's a sight gag. It's Definitely, a, it's a running joke of a sight gag. Okay, okay, right on. Well, that that one I picked up this time. I really liked one of the things that I've 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 really enjoyed in this movie for a while is I wanted to know if you picked up on the Vulcanvania welcome sign. So it's when they, they, before he runs the stop sign, he drives into town yes. and you know, it's, it's like a very, um, you know, welcome to Hill Valley estates type thing. But the picture on the Vulcanvania welcome sign is a picture of a car accident. Like, a, like two cars ran directly head on nose into oh, each other. Yeah. And there's, there's dead bodies, like four or five of them, like on the ground, like covered in white sheets to show that they're dead bodies. And then there's a cop, smiling while holding yeah. a baby and and the top of the the top of the sign has a slogan that says he should have obeyed the law <laughs> yeah i saw that too and i kind of like now that you mention it it's coming back to me yeah that's I, I picked up on that and i have to say this game this sign eh, this movie sign game 
is like A plus. There are some oh, fantastic yeah. like road signs of this. And yeah, I saw that too. Like I kind of looked at it like what wait, what? Because <laughs> I, I like that in movies. I love it when there's like uh road signs that are kind of like just like they look normal on the surface, but you, the closer mm-hmm. you look at them, the more things are just like, wait, what? And like how like off color they can be. Um yeah, I picked up on that. That was that was a strange one. I'm like, what is going on? Like usually like there'd be something like uh something like that, but like the baby was like kind of like the the icing on the kicker. It's like this makes no I I get it, but I don't yeah. think I it's like I, I don't get it, but I think they want me to. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Speaking of signs, I also liked it. I guess it's more of like maybe a, a signal than a sign, but when John Candy first gets introduced, he, he you know, he finally stops the Chevy Chase or you know, they get pulled over. And he gets out of the car and it shows like the little logo for the Vulcanvania Police Department. And their slogan, like their Latin slogan is uh, Nihil Tolerantur, which translates to nothing tolerated. And I really uh, like that little touch where the cops are like, you know, there's their slogan is like nothing will be tolerated. Like you're getting put to death for everything. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's that, that's kind of like the uh, the room with the, the 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 clippings and the IDs. It's like it's a small thing yep. that unless you rewatch the movie three or four times, you will never pick up on it. Exactly. I know there is one sign. I think it's when they're driving into the the junkyard initially, like John Candy puts the the drawbridge down and they all cross over it. And there's like a one really quick shot of the of the cars crossing the moat on the drawbridge. And there's like there's like a a little it's two dimensional, but it's like a statue or it looks like a statue of some like angel type thing. And there's clearly text on it, like a good bit of text. But the the quality I think we have is so poor that you can't make any of it out. And that I would love to be able to read. Yeah. Like even like in the moat, there's like what, like a, a metal sculpture of like a dragon or something in the moat. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. We get that. Oh, it's such a cringeworthy line where, you know, they're like, look at that sculpture. And Demi Moore says something like, Oh, he must be into folk art. And then Chevy Chase goes, folk em. Like, and I'm guessing it's supposed to be like a fuck em type joke, like folk em. Look at this metal sculpture. It must be into folk art. Welcome. But it's so, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, there's this, yeah. Chevy Chase has a lot of those kind of like groaner moments. Yeah, oh yeah, groaner is a really good way to put it. It's just like, oh, come on. It's like, why do we even need a quip there? Yeah. Because even like, like the drawbridge, like, I know like, when they're crossing, like when um, John Candy puts the drawbridge down, there's like a word on it, but it's like spelt like mirrored. Mm-hmm. And you can't see what it says, and it's not until like Chevy Chase drives over it and looks in his rearview mirror that it says like what like enjoy your stay. Yeah, yeah, yep. And I'm like again, that's a small touch, but you know what? It paid off. Like that's the sort of humor this thing needs. Like okay, you have something set up that pays off when you're least expecting it. Exactly, exactly. That would have made this so but, much but, better. <laughs> but, but instead, we get a, a Hawaiian punch can with a like an old school retro gasoline like funnel that punches into the can yeah yeah <laughs> this movie should be called sight gag the movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, or hawaiian punch in a can <laughs> that'd be good yeah what doesn't chevy chase something say something um which definitely you know that whole dinner scene and we'll have to talk more about when we get to snacks of course but he says something he's like oh i i, I love to enjoy a nice warm glass of hawaiian punch <laughs> at the end of a long day or something <laughs> like that yeah <laughs> couple of good ones. I, I, even though like he doesn't want to be here and it's very evident he does have a couple of good one-liners mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely <laughs> so the other thing that i have to we have to talk more about is the bone stripper i think we talked about it you know a little bit but 
I, I love the whole concept of the bone stripper. I love that it's like a tiny little, you know, roller coaster ride that then jettisons you onto a conveyor belt that puts you into a machine that will separate your bones from everything else. And then it will shoot the bones out at a, uh, a target that apparently or seemingly no one is watching this target. And it's, it's like, why, why would we need a target there? And why does it matter if these bones hit the center of it and it makes like a dinging noise? It's just, it's just, you know, nobody said no. But I also <laughs> love the fact that the Bone Stripper has its own little like theme song called oh, Bone yeah. Stripper. <laughs> I love I think that's just so cool like you know with all the music in this movie you know the you know the uh the four uh Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons song um uh the Digital Underground performance the Ray Charles song at the beginning that we have a little theme song for the Bone Stripper I really like that <laughs> Again no one said no Yep yeah exactly The Bone Stripper in and of itself you know I think we said that definitely is, is freaked like and you know that's definitely one of the things that made me think of it as well um, but I, I think that's a, just a solid, um, amusement park ride overall, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is, that, that, that's a clever, that's a, a weirdly creative moment. It's almost like reminds me of, um, monkey bone. Cause this is about the roller coaster and that. Yeah. When he goes, when he's in the coma, it's like how you get to coma world is you, you take that, uh, roller coaster ride. Yeah. Oh man. I f- totally forgot about that. That's what I mean. I swear. It's another one of those movies. That it kind of feels like it's like I think we talked. I forget what movie it was, but we kind of talked about like a lot of things have. I think it was Cat and Hat again. Like a lot of things have borrowed from it over the years. Monkey Bone is a great example. I can't believe I didn't think of that because I love that movie. Um, but you're so right. Like I'm even thinking like when he when Brendan Fraser is in you know Coma World or whatever it's called in Monkey Bone, all those costumes and stuff. You know I haven't seen it in a while, but it, it's making me think of the. Uh, of the grotesque babies in this movie. Like it's yep. like the extension of that. Yeah. That's a really great point. Yeah. Like I said, I think a lot of things have, a like, just for the reason that nobody's ever heard of it before. A lot of things have uh, borrowed from it over the years. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. When are we going to get to monkey bone now? <laughs> yeah, we should get them. I don't know. Mon- when monkey bone come out, was that 2000 oh. or 2001? I think, yeah, it was definitely in the two thousands very early. I would imagine. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know when it came out, but that, that it would, I would definitely be willing to talk about that. Man, that's yeah. a great movie. <laughs> we should. Uh, that's that's oh, Chris Catan as the dead person brought back to life with a yardstick holding his spine up is this the most ridiculous shit I've, I think I've ever seen. <laughs> wow, that movie is the most rid- ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Okay, okay it came out in two thousand one. 
Exactly. Should this be added to the um the the pre nine eleven blockbusters or isn't that a series we've talked about before? That <laughs> the two, summer of two thousand one. If if Cine, folks, if Cinemodies makes it to twenty twenty one, uh, we're gonna have <laughs> a really that's gonna be a fun year for Cinemodies. That's gonna be because I think at that point after I let Rob have like his six month long series on sketch comedy, I think I'm finally able to convince him that we do like like a two month like maybe even three month series on the blockbusters of two thousand one. Just hit all the anniversaries. <laughs> I th- I think because that's what we're gonna do. Because Monkey Bone came out February of two thousand one. Oh. Freddie got fingered was April of two thousand one. Then we have like all the ones like um. Oh, I know we went through this a while ago, but like we have like, all the weird like blockbusters like Pearl Harbor, yep. Lara Croft, uh, like all those. And I think like that would be. I think like two thousand twenty one. We could do the twentieth anniversary of all this stuff. <laughs> it's 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 gonna be called the anniversary series. It's gonna start like in April of two thousand one. It's not gonna conclude until like September of that. It'll be like a four month long series. Right on. Look forward it, to that, kids. <laughs> that'll be the the predecessor to the um the other series I wanted to do. What was it like? The, like the the origins of horror. Where oh it'd be like yeah. Almost an entire year devoted devoted to horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. You have oh a, yeah. Right you have, on. You have, a, you have a lot to look forward to, folks. Uh, roughly, what would that be? Twenty-two months from now, we'll get into Monkey Bow and Freddy Got Fingered. Yeah, yeah. But mark your calendars. <laughs> Twenty twenty-one. Oh man, that's great. Yeah, you can go that far out in like Google calendars and stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> we do the spreadsheet. All of twenty twenty is left blank, but we have twenty twenty-one <laughs> figured out. I want to put that in my calendar and set a, a reminder for one year prior. So in 2020, you'd be like, oh, Zach, remember what we're doing in a year from now? <laughs> you got to start working on it right now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Once we, yeah, I still have to pick Goosebumps episodes for this Monstober, <laughs> but, you know, let's just jump ahead and get our 2021 <laughs> out of the way. <laughs> the kind of thing, Monkey Bone might be an interesting Monstober choice. Yeah, it does have that those you know Halloween esque elements to it with the coma world and the and the whole thing about like you know what isn't the plot of that movie they want him to go back to the real world and and give poison people so they have like ridiculous dreams because that's yeah. their form of entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, a that, bonkers movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, and that's that might be. A, I don't know. That's. I don't know. I never thought of that movie's a Halloween movie, but like maybe, maybe that might be a Mod Stober one. Is because uh, that was very. I remember I had the I had the VHS uh, VHS tape for that still. And that was Ooh. a very nostalgic movie for me. So uh, maybe I, I, I I've never seen that. I've only ever seen it on VHS. I've never seen it like in any sort of like proper viewing. Okay, the first time I saw it was on VHS when I think we rented it from a movie rental store. <laughs> Yeah, that's how I saw it too. I think at one oh, point, okay. even I remember even finding ones like they had like monkey bone, like stuffed animals. Oh, interesting! There's, like the ones from the movie. I don't know because I remember like there's a, there's a couple movies from like the early two thousands. I remember like going on the computer in like early two thousands fashion and finding merchandise for them. And like a couple of years, like over the years, I've gone back trying to find like if it still like existed, like if it's mm-hmm. even like available on like eBay, like like an insanely high like markup. And I can't find it because I know for a fact I saw Monkey Bone plushes, and I wanted one. And that was like back when my my father was like terrified of the internet, mm-hmm. and so like like my like so he never let my mother and I ever buy anything online. So like. I remember seeing it and be like, well, there goes that. So unless I ever find it like Toys R Us, I'm never getting it. Sure. And then, sure. I, remember, then I remember finding like they had like a plank from like Ed and Eddie stuffed animal. <laughs> and I've never been able to find that since online. 
And then I remember finding the watch from Clock Stoppers. Like, not like I know, like, the, the watch from that movie is like an official, like, real watch. Okay. But, like, I remember finding, like, a replica for it on, like, Nickelodeon's website, like, Nickelodeon, like, store.com. And I've never been able to find that either. Mm. So, like, I know, I know there's a lot of movie merchandise from, like, movies of, like, the early 2000s. That I guess it's I guess it's kind of like what happened to like the freaked action figures where like nobody bought it. So it probably either went to like like wholesalers. Yeah, yeah. Because I know like even like where I live, there's like a wholesaler. And like I find some like really weird toys there from like like movies. Like I found like like Fantastic Four merchandise from like the TV show like in the mid nineties. Oh wow. And, and they'll have like like twenty like like toys of the exact same like like no name like character. <laughs> Interesting, and that's where it is. Like, so I guess like something like that would have gone to like wholesale, and then it just disappeared. It probably happened like back in like two thousand three. So like fifteen plus years later, it just it's never going to show up again. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it was probably never produced in any sort of serious quantity, and then when it does get like spread to different corners, what's not destroyed or thrown out probably is just like in just someone's basement. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like we we need to start some like. I don't know, our version of American Pickers, but instead of looking for old road signs and bottles and stuff and car parts, we only look for movie memorabilia. Exactly. <laughs> and and merchandise. Yeah. <laughs> we look exclusively for uh, freaked merchandise, monkey bone, and nothing but trouble merchandise. Yes. Yes. Definitely. I wonder, I wonder if you even find a nothing but trouble, like, authentic poster. Mm, that'd be interesting. I know I, in the um, in the fan documentary that we've referenced a few times, they do discuss. Oh yeah, the original some, poster. Yeah, yeah, the original poster and how you know how intriguing it looks, but for whatever reason they went with the just good old you know floating heads above the junkyard. Yeah. Okay. Because I found. Hmm, apparently, there was a Laurel and Hardy like movie and stuff. I found a a still, a black okay. and white still. Uh, with Demi Moore and Lil Devil, Devil and Bobo saying the infant bodies, the Lil Devil and Bobo captured Diane and she desperately protests the death sentence by Valkyvania's ancient Justice of the Peace in Warner Brothers comedy adventure Nothing But Trouble, also starring Chevy Chase and John Candy. And it's a still from mm. 19. It says solely for advertising, promotion, and publicity. That's available for, uh, for the low, low price of $25 or make an offer. Oh God! <laughs> so if anybody else wants to own this piece of a uh, movie-making history, it's yours for the taking. Get on it! <laughs> oh, there's oh no, it's the same. It's the same listing twice. Yeah, because that's a weird thing even about this too. It's like I I think. <laughs> oh, I got sight. Some I thought someone had a T-shirt with just the poster on it. <laughs> but what but what it is? It's legit. Somebody just like has a T-shirt as a background of like the oh. DVD case. Okay. I got excited for nothing. Damn. <laughs> yeah, like that's. Like, I guess that'd be a weird one trying to get like a movie poster for because like that was back in the day, but like when people never uh, figured anything like this would be like worth value. So probably yeah. was like what probably did, I would imagine probably Dan Ancoy probably has one or two, mm-hmm. and then like the rest of them probably either got thrown out. That's it. That's the sad thing. A lot of this stuff like just probably just got thrown out because like okay, the movie like lost us like thirty two million dollars. Why are we going to save anything from it? Exactly. Yep. But you can't get. But then it's a bummer for us. Yeah, but you can. But look on the bright side, though. You can get a Smurf nothing but trouble ladies' women's panties. Did you say Smurfs? (laughs) 
it's women's underwear. It says nothing but trouble. The Smurfs has a picture of a uh, what was her name? Lady Smurf. Smurfette, yeah. Smurfette, and that's in the same thing. You type in if you type in nothing but trouble on eBay. That's one of the things you keep getting. <laughs> Apparently, there's more of that out there than there is of the movie. Oh man. <laughs> I know that's, that's that. what I want to see. I want to see people wearing Smurf underwear in my life. <laughs> yeah, boy. <laughs> uh, uh, so what other moments do you have from this movie, Rob? Uh, I think I think that was pretty much it, you know, without getting into just, you know, all the, the kind of crazy things we see. I think the remaining moments are going to come up when we discuss some of our um, real questions, I should say. The, the questions that matter? The qu- Yes, the questions that matter. Absolutely. So well, I guess... Uh, yeah, go for it. Well, I have one more. There's one moment that I genuinely like. Okay, now I want to say I genuinely enjoy, but my favorite scene in the movie okay. is I love how after Chevy Chase and Demi Moore escape on the train, they go to like the police, and it's them in front of like a dry erase board with markers pointing to the entire like crude markup of yes. the Justice of the Pieces. Like, uh, oh god. What would you call it? Like reservation land, mm-hmm. and they're describing what happened to them to the like the law officials, and they'd say that and it cuts to these like three lawmakers or what you call them, police officials, and they're kind of just staring blankly at them. Yeah, and I love the fact that this movie pr- basically ends with the main characters trying to explain the plot to someone, and those characters having no idea what it is they're talking about. <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah, I do I do like that scene as well because they're all, you know, ranting and rambling over each other, Demi Moore and Debbie, Chevy Chase about, you know, what happened to them and, and they have such a such like a, a seemingly accurate representation of the place they were in. You know, they even I think in the like up to the top right of that that dry erase board, they they have like the um the the Stonehenge with cars, but they call it like auto henge. Like they <laughs> even give names to some of this stuff. Yeah, that's a good one. But I think it's like so like I, in today's day and age, this would be like like plugged. In. I could imagine this being like the ending to Deadpool three, where mm. the end of the movie is him trying to explain to someone, or he's trying to explain to someone how the movie ends. Again, it being very meta, and the person being like, "What you said made absolutely no sense." Like like that's I can imagine that happening nowadays. But in the nineteen ninety one, to have that as almost your final scene in the movie. Oh, okay. Like that's unusually meta for a movie of like the nineties, especially yeah. the late eighties. Yeah, that's a good point. Right on. <laughs> and even like I just delve into the ending of this. Like it feels like I know like we we read and heard like they didn't know how to end this movie. Dan mm-hmm. Croy didn't. So like it does feel like it has like an ending because like you have that ending where like the like they go there, they lead the police to like the the compound, the estate of the Justice of the Peace. Then it's like he opens the door and he's like, I think you got a hornet's nest behind you. And you have like 80 police officers go, hi, grandpa. Yeah. Hi there, folks. And I think that's a really fun ending being like, oh, man, they, they escaped. And then they led themselves right back into their own doom again. And mm-hmm. like, oh, then like the coal fire like blows up. And then like the movie ends with like, like the Justice of the Peace being like, I'm going to live with my grandson-in-law. And like yep. Chevy Chase like jumps through the like the like the wall like a cartoon character, and I'm like eh, like like I like how cartoony that is though. But like it would have been so much better if it just ends with them being like like they get ca- like, they're now the result of their doom. They escaped, now they led themselves to their own demise. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and the idea that Justice of the Peace like gets the last laugh. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. Kind of feel, it feels like again another example of like we didn't know how to end this, so here you go. Yeah, yeah. And he said it rambles off. It's kind of like rambles off into nothing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
But uh, no, with that being said, uh, I guess we're going to delve into uh, snack or late night movie. Uh, let's start with late night movie. And this one, this one, I think, you know, I'm not on the fence. I think I very firmly for this one want to say no to late night movie. And the reason I'm going to say no is when I first started thinking about this, for some reason, my brain went to, you know, how how could I get someone to agree to this or how do I explain this to somebody? And I think the concept that we mentioned earlier of being like, oh, you know, like these people from the city get caught up by this crazy judge in the middle of nowhere that just, you know, executes people for minor violations and be like, okay, that's something, you know, let's go with that. And I could probably convince someone to watch this. The star power also being like, oh, Dan Aykroyd, you know, someone our age, maybe a little older, if they're familiar with Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, and they don't know this movie, they might be like me and be like, oh, hey, yeah, that sounds great. Let's watch that. But even though you can get somebody to watch a movie, the the big thing for late night movie, of course, is are you going to get the response that you're looking for? Are you going to get, you know, uh, great discussion from it? Are you going to get great kind of, you know, shock and awe value or just complete bafflement? And, you know, it's all about getting that experience to the other person. And I can't imagine showing this to somebody else as a late night movie and then them being like, why? Why did we do that? <laughs> like, I, the only thing I can think of is I could get somebody to sit down and watch this for an hour and a half and then they'd be like, man, I could have spent that 90 minutes watching The Office reruns and I would have been happier. Like, it's that type of thing. I don't think I'm, we're going to get react. I'm going to get reactions from people from this movie in the way that I'd want for a late night film. So I'm going to go no. I'm also going to say no to The Office. You shouldn't watch that late at night either. <laughs> no, you shouldn't watch The Office at all. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a definitive no, no matter how you slice it. Yeah. <laughs> My concern with this is somewhat in the vein of what you were getting at, but at the same time, it's the idea of somebody who probably watched this after the first like half an hour or 45 minutes, just like out and out, like dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Where it would be like, okay, this is just goofy, so like I'm not going to pay attention to it anymore. Yeah, they go to their phones and and that's it. Yep. Yeah, or even just like kind of like mentally tune, like, like just you know they might be watching, they just mentally tune it out. Sure, sure. And I think that's what I'm afraid of. Like I think this could like again with the right audience, this would be a fun late night movie. But at the same time, though, you have to find it. Like you have to find people who are on board with it. Almost like have to know what they're getting themselves into. Exactly. You could yeah. just dump this on someone. Definitely, definitely. Because, yeah, like I, like I said, if you explained it in a way that, you know, kind of didn't reveal the the, the in, insanity or the nonsensicalness behind it, then someone, you know, might get a certain picture in their head and be like, yeah, I want to watch this. And then what they as almost immediately, it's nothing like what that short synopsis gives the idea of. But, you know, like, I think that's what we've been saying for this whole discussion is that's kind of, you know, this movie, there really isn't anything to it. And any way you try and describe it, you're never going to hit that mark. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the uh, the hazard with this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm, I'm leaning toward a no unless you know your audience. Okay, okay. I feel like that's a big theme for the late night movies that are pure cinemodities. <laughs> Not yeah, just in to... this series, but in all the other ones we've discussed where we agree on cinemodity, but then we go, okay, you got to know something about who you're showing it to. Yeah, because like, people are different. And if you show it to the wrong movie, you'll probably do more harm. Because like, remember, that person will go out and like, if you ever hear the title again, they'll, like, just, they'll tell people, no, don't ever watch it. Exactly. Yep. That's another one of the hazards when you're showing uh, cinemodities to uh, normies. Normies have a bad t- have a bad habit of just like shutting things down and not letting people experience it for themselves. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I I feel like I'm 
realizing that. I think Zach's been saying that for the whole time Cinemodities as the podcast has existed. But I think I'm realizing it more and more now that, you know, we've definitely this has got me thinking more uh, critically or analytically about films. And I definitely get that sense when I, you know, I'll see a movie and I'll tell someone about it or they'll ask about it and I'll say something. And it's more of like what their connotations with the words I said, that forms the movie to them. You know, like Mortal Engines comes into mind because it wasn't too long ago where, you know, someone was looking through my hard drive and I was looking through theirs. We were swapping files and I had Mortal Engines and they were like, oh, I wanted to see that. Have you seen it? I was like, yes. And it was like two and a half hours of total incomprehensible nonsense. And they're like, okay, I don't want it. And I go, no, 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 I didn't say that you shouldn't see it. I said that it's incomprehensible. And they're like, no, 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 that means it's bad. And it's like, no, and I think there's when you're talking or showing movies these days, Zach, you hit the nail on the head. Like if if you say something that could be even slightly gotten to be negative connotation, they're gonna just you know, you know, hate on it. And I'm sure that the people I said this to are going off, and you know, if anyone else is gonna want to watch Mortal Engines with them, they're gonna repeat what I said and be like, oh, I know this guy who said it was incomprehensible. I don't want that nonsense. But it's like, no, I didn't say it was like something you shouldn't waste your time on. I just said it made no sense. <laughs> Yeah, and that's and that's the problem with like normies. You gotta be careful what kind of wording you use because they have a nasty habit of just regurgitating other people's opinions. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And still, I still to this day, I don't think Zach, you still have not seen. You saw some of Mortal Engines, right? I like watched the first like forty minutes of it, and I'm like, I, I, I'm getting a headache. And I had to turn it off. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. I have still not found anyone else who's seen it, but I just the only thing th there's the green terminator in that movie. He just, you know, for a good yep. hour, the only thing he does is follow the main characters around and say the woman's name. So like the whole movie he's just like Esther Shaw. And no one will understand that joke until they sit through all two and a half hours of this movie. <laughs> and I want someone to I want someone to get that. <laughs> oh good lord. Even I don't get that joke yet. Esther Shaw, because the Green Terminator wants to turn his human kid into a cyborg kid, so of he has to say he has to say your name over and over and over. <laughs> of course. Oh man, maybe we'll get to that. Maybe that'll be another thing where you know, Zach will watch the first forty minutes. We'll get someone else to watch the next forty minutes. I'll watch the last forty minutes. <laughs> now that like would that. be interesting. Now that would be a fascinating one to do that with. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, okay, a good, a good know your audience discussion. And yeah, you got to be careful with it, absolutely. Okay, well then I guess we have snacks next, right? I think so. Okay, so this, this of course, as I already mentioned, we have to talk about the dinner scene because we get some, you know, insinuated cannibalism. We get the train full of condiments, which is great. I think, I think that's where I want to start, is that the Cinemodities restaurant, even though it's not one big giant table, you know, it's definitely separate tables, I think that we should have some type of train delivery system. So some type of tracks where, you know, we would put maybe condiments or, or, you know, maybe that's where you would get like, um, the salt and pepper, the sugar packets. So that everything that's usually on the table is not on the table. It's on this train. And I want it to go around the whole restaurant, but like unsafely fast. So, so my idea is thinking that we have this train and it's kind of like, you know, the idea is there that we're going to have like this little thing to, that gets to people's tables and serves them or they can serve themselves from, but it's set on such a speed that it falls over or off the tracks, like maybe once or twice a day. And we're going to hire somebody who, whose sole job is going to be the Cinemodities condiment train conductor. And he's going to be the person who has to fix the condiment train every day. 
So that's my idea, Zach. We're going to hire someone new. Or we might we could use one of our existing waiters or characters to uh, do this job for us. So what do you think? A train of condiments that's going to inconvenience a lot of people. <laughs> well, I like the idea of inconveniencing people. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea even more as if I, not like the train goes so fast that it derails, but maybe do it in a way that like it much like um, John Candy, the sister, whatever her name is, El Dorado. And <laughs> nice. <laughs> is that like she tries to grab for like a pickle slice or something. And it moves too fast and she misses it. So maybe not fast enough that we have to constantly keep like cleaning it up. But okay. just fast enough that it becomes frustrating. That, like it's frustrating that people can't get their condiment, but they want to keep trying because they think it's within grasp. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, so maybe something like um, the tracks will go by certain tables, maybe um, as many of the tables as we can, you know, to make it. I, I, I have to say, I'm not imagining like a giant system of rails in the Cinemodities restaurant for like a toy train. I'm thinking maybe it just goes around like a perimeter. And this would be like if you sit in a booth or something, you get this. And it's going around and it just never stops. So you, you always have to like get it on the move. Like you have to be ready. Be like, here it comes, here it comes. Which car are the pickles in? Oh, the fourth one. Okay, I'm ready, I'm ready. And then you have to like time it right to be able to pick it up. Is that something like what you're saying? Basically. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I could get behind that because then people are like, damn, like I can do this. Like this is a challenge now. I can wait the, the however long it takes for it to circle back around. I'm going to get my pickles this time. <laughs> it's kind of like the equivalent of like the claw grabbing machine. Okay. It's like, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, grab it, but you know what? You're going to try anyway. You're going to put a quarter into the machine. Yeah. And when you don't get it, it makes you angry enough that you can just very impulsively throw that next quarter in and play again. Exactly. Okay. Okay. What do we think about maybe putting, like, let's say we'll just, we'll stick with pickles as the example. And there's going to be one car and I'll have pickles in it. What do you think about even like putting like a little lid on the car? So it's even more difficult for the people to get it. It's not like they'd have to time it and just grab the pickle. They actually have to like lift the lid and grab the pickle. So maybe more of the derailment comes from the people trying to get it rather than of the train going too quickly. Eh, I'm not sure about that. I don't want to make it too hard. People get frustrated then. Remember, remember, <laughs> people are frustrated to begin with being in this restaurant. I know, that's exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> so we don't want to hit them from all angles, is what you're saying. No. We, want, we want some things to have um, the semblance of an actual decent experience. Yes. Okay, okay, that's that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> God, people need, need uh, ketchup for their, their hot dogs. Yeah, and whatever else they order. <laughs> the, the trick of the light intestine thing. <laughs> they need what happens? They need doesn't, ketchup. Doesn't, doesn't like a pickle slice like shoot one of the Brazilian people in the face? And yeah. That's, a, that's a the final straw. Yeah, one, one of the train cars is has like a little like a little flip or something, and there's like a pickle on it, and it flips into Fausto's face, and he's like, that's it, I can't take it. <laughs> the, the next thing from that scene I wanted to bring up was, of course, the... Uh, the hot dogs or I guess the human dogs or anything like that. Um, I don't think we have any, I think we have some, we've talked about like some sausage or casing, some type of meat before, but I definitely think that we need to take advantage of like, uh, the, the grossness of so the way that Dan Acker eats that hot dog that has like ketchup, mustard, and what looks like mayonnaise on it as yeah, well. It like looks, in the it slice looks like of mayonnaise. And he just, like, smashes it into his face. Like, I feel like that needs to come into play somehow. Like, 
Like, you know, maybe it's it's like um, we have a food type of challenge where restaurants will do that. Like, oh, you have to eat this giant pizza in half an hour, eat this much food in this amount of time or whatever. Our food challenge would be something like we're going to give you this hot dog, which is way too big for the bun. We're going to put all these messy condiments on it and you have to eat it in like one bite or something. Or you have to you, you have to shovel it all into your mouth or something like that. You know what I'm getting at? Yes. So so what did you do? I, I don't think I fleshed out the idea well enough yet, but. Did you, were you thinking of that hot dog scene as well for any snacks? Well, I was thinking more, well, my main sack is not a food item, but I think it's more of like a bratwurst you're looking at. Because you want mm-hmm. that, like, if you have like a hot dog, it's, it's not hard to bite through a hot dog. Like a kid can bite through a hot dog. Yeah. You need a, you need a bratwurst with a pretty like, I don't want to say thick casing, but enough of a case that when you bite into it, like requires, like you have to really kind of like bite into it and like wiggle it around a little bit to get that same sort of effect yeah. that Danny Court has. Yeah, and I like that because it'll be thicker than a hot dog as well, making the challenge even more difficult. <laughs> exactly. That that's oh, what I think okay. you're looking at. Okay, okay, yeah, I get behind that. Yeah, and that would be good, like a bratwurst and, and the color of in the movie, the hot dogs are very, you know, grayish. I think there is some type of sausage thing that is pretty gray. Like what like knockwurst or something, or yeah. one of those weird German meats. So we could do something like that. Um okay, I get behind that. I get behind that. So yeah, that that will have to iron out the details of our food competition a little bit more. But that's we'll get a good uptick in customers for doing the because the, the going to the restaurant and surviving isn't a competition enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I do have to say that another snack that I was thinking of, just as you mentioned, yours you had one that was non-food related. I had a non-food related one as well, and it was actually more for the. The kids section, the sin commodities portion of the restaurant. And so in this film, we get that scene where um, Demi Moore and and Chevy Chase find a slide in the mansion. And they slide down it, but they get split up at a certain point. Demi Moore gets thrown outside with the grotesque babies. And Chevy Chase just lands in a pile of bones. (laughs) And of course, it's next to the justice's room and all that stuff. And the plot continues, or the, the movie continues, I should say. But I was thinking... In our little play place, in the Sin Emodities, or if, even if we haven't talked about it, we'll have some type of play place. We'll have a slide, and instead of going into a ball pit, it would go into a bone pit. What do you think? I love it. I think it's great, and I the 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 extension of it that I, I had this idea, and I and I was like, great, I want little kids to you know fall into a pit of like femurs and spinal racks and things like that. The next thing I thought of was. Somebody would see that, like an adult or something, and I would love for someone to be like, oh, is this like a dog play place? Because you have bones in it, and like my dog can go and like run around and play with these bones and be like, nope, human children only. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about that that I really like where we have to put a sign up on like on the glass of the play play place that says like no animals allowed, like humans only or something (laughs) like that. No, I like the idea, not just children only. Human children only. Human children only, yes. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and, th- and then, I mean, you know, I guess uh, if any kid, you know, gets, like, lost in the bone pit, it's not really that bad of a, of a thing because they'll just, like, you know, decompose and add to the bones, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have to sign a waiver every time your child wants to play in it. <laughs> Mommy, this smells like rotting eggs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm just thinking now of, like, this this being a bone pit, like in a play place, 
being the setting of some like really really weird Law and Order's Vu episode. Where it'd be like his bones are in a bone pit at the play place of the Cinemodities restaurant, and then like Ice T has to come and and find the bones with the medical examiner or something. <laughs> That'd be great. I think we should um, like when we finally have it the the, the opening of the Cinemodities restaurant, we should invite uh, Ice T as one of the like VIP guests. Oh yes, absolutely. And I think that's how eventually, you know, because they still have Zvu going, they may or may not be doing that Law & Order hate crimes anymore. Who knows if that's going to happen. But hopefully in a few years, everyone will get to watch 50-plus seasons of Law & Order Cinemodities. <laughs> <laughs> every, every, uh, every episode, someone will go into the restaurant, order something, and it'll kill them. And they'll have to figure out, the detectives will have to do something with that. <laughs> we'll leave the rest to Dick Wolf. We just give him the setting. He, he can make a good series, I'm sure. He can figure it out along with Mariska Hargitay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> that would be the, uh, the pilot of Law & Order Cinemodities, be a crossover with Zvu. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe we'll, maybe we'll, we'll sprinkle in some uh, late, in later seasons, some like Chicago series as well. Definitely. Yeah, now I'm just thinking the pilot is Zvu gets called in because a, a kid got lost in the bone pit at the Cinemodities restaurant. <laughs> but, but why would Special Victims Unit be there, though? Just because it's a kid. I think they, oh, okay. they they do that sometimes. If it's a kid, they just consider that a special special victim. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And then and you know maybe like the like uh, they'll think the kid's lost, but it'll be like oh he's in the bone pit, and they got to dig through the bone pit, and maybe it'll be like oh we got we we cleared like seventy plus <laughs> cold cases from the bone pit. It wasn't in there, and then they have to go and they have to like you know find the um find the kidnapper like maybe someone abducts the kid from the restaurant and then that the rest of their episode is kind of away from the restaurant but that would be where it spins off it'd be like oh, the, the okay. state has to deal with like 70 plus cold cases from our bone pit <laughs> and every episode they have to like go and figure out where'd you get these bones you know oh that was when we were making blah 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 and you know all that stuff oh this is Do golden <laughs> so we're kind of like a pawn shop when it comes to jewelry we have to report everything that like we have so like when it report like when it comes up stolen the police like nowhere to go <laughs> yeah we have a like a, a log of all our bones <laughs> where they came from we need a paper trail for every set of bones we get <laughs> oh i love it i love it but yeah so i think the bone pit and all those things that just uh, uh, stemmed from it, that was my my last snack. So what did you have non-food related? I really liked, almost like beyond the levels of the Cinemodities restaurant, the idea of serving a drink in a giant can and just punching the hole of the or the lid of the can sure. with the spout. It's like a difficult version of Capri Sun. <laughs> I love it. I love that. It's like, like I'm surprised that like, like on Bar Rescue, John Taffer hasn't like pitched that as like an idea for like, like, and this thing it would give you a new way to serve drinks. It's a can with a spout sticking out of it. You jam in. Yeah, it looks a little steampunky too. That would probably sell places. That's what I mean. Like, I think that could actually work in the real world, not just like the bizarro world of the Cinemodities restaurant. Yeah, you know, so some like a like a breakfast place. Someone's like, "Oh, could I have uh, some orange juice?" And then you just get like a like a can, and you got to punch the can and just drink the orange juice and you know shake it up beforehand. <laughs> yeah, because once you punch through exist. it, you can't shake that anymore. <laughs> exactly, I think it works as is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I get behind that. Right on. Man, are you saying we might have something that we can license to other restaurants? <laughs> I know, and guess what? It's eco friendly, so it's not like like all the stupid straw laws they keep passing everywhere. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, it's a reusable straw. 
perfect. You I put dig it in it. the car wash dishwasher that we have on like a retainer. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> I like to imagine it's like a car wash near the Cinematis restaurant, and like every like let's say the Cinematis restaurant like closes one day a week for mm. the sake of this bit. Let's just say it's Mondays, and like every Monday there's a car wash near the Cinematis restaurant, and people always get mad because it's shut down. And one day someone's <laughs> like, "I wonder why that place is always shut down on Mondays," and they see you and I just like running in out of it with like utensils and like dishes. <laughs> Yeah, a giant tray filled with like hundreds of plates. <laughs> That's what we do. We we rent out a car wash one day a week to uh, clean our utensils in our uh, in our tableware. Nice, nice. I like that. Oh man, that that'd be another great episode for Law and Order Cinematities, <laughs> where, where they they get somebody finds a bone in a car wash, like a human bone in a car wash, and it's, they call the cops and be like. How did a bone get in this car wash? Did someone throw it out? It's like, oh, no, we close once a week to clean for this restaurant. And that's how it would lead them to us. Okay, okay. (laughs) I think in everything I've said, I don't I don't have I have yet to figure out or even state or even implicitly say that we would not be the criminals, but (laughs) we would not be the criminals like we would be helping the detectives to some extent, I imagine. (laughs) I think it should be a little bit more like the lines are blurred. Like, oh, did we do it? Like, like how shady is the business? Like, <laughs> like it's shady enough that like all these weird things are happening here, but not shady enough for them to pin it directly on us each time. So like the first, so like the first few seasons, it'll just be like, you know, maybe the undertone is there. Like, do these, does this restaurant have something to do with it? Or are they just a restaurant? And then, you know, it kind of becomes more of a plot point. And eventually it's like people just watching the show. It becomes like the, um, the murder she wrote phenomenon where it's like, man, everywhere Jessica Fletcher goes, people die. Maybe <laughs> she has something to do with it. You know, it's like, man, every episode we're going to this restaurant. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> It'd be like that, but the, it's more like the lion's part. It's like, maybe, maybe okay. not. I like that. I like that. Have a morally ambiguous uh, main character in Law and Order. Sure. <laughs> I guess our next thing is talking about what the state, the high school stage production of this would look like. Yes, yes. So I think I'm glad we got this movie in here for this play adaptation discussion because it brings up something important that should have been said in the first two um, discussions for Under the Skin and Annihilation, and it will certainly hold for our next week's discussion. Um, but all of our Cinemodities theaters, so when when you take our donation, when you let us build this theater— it is 100% going to be equipped with trap doors. Yes, <laughs> plural trap doors. Probably one big one in the middle, but, you know, there'll be some off to the side, and, and there'll be a whole slew of them. And, of course, that would lend itself really well to this movie uh, because we get to see some trapdoor uses, uh, especially, you know, in the craziness of the mansion. Um, but I think, you know, it would definitely be able to uh, help out with some of our other, other performances of or at least uh, Under the Skin Annihilation. You know, it might be able to... Uh, be used for, say, um, you know, the the people walking into like the the weird black liquid and under the skin and and things like that. So that had to be said right off the bat. We're definitely going to have trap doors in our theaters. <laughs> so now, thinking about this movie for the play adaptation, the first thing that comes to mind, and I, and I think it's because of how lacking the plot is, it seems like this actually wouldn't be difficult to put on the stage at least for like a, a theater troupe that had the right resources, because there's not much to this. I feel like it actually could be adapted fairly well to the stage. Were you getting that sense or are we just, you know, off, am I off the reservation on this one? <laughs> no, I think you get away with this pretty easily. Like, like yes, the props have to be kind of like toned down, mm-hmm. but I think probably get better performance at some of the high school actors and you would Chevy Chase and uh, John Candy. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it, it almost makes kind of sense. You know, you have like the setup, the first scene is them meeting and, oh, I want to drive to this place. Okay, let's do it. And then, you know, you kind of have the chase scene and then you get to the mansion and you maybe, you know, like a slide would be very easy to probably work into on the stage. And, you know, you have some sliding stuff and bones. Like I said, with the right resources, it would be uh, it would probably wouldn't be the worst thing. And that's a good point with the performance aspect. That probably would be a little better from some of our high school actors. <laughs> or if you really want to make it uh, realistic, you cast the same girl that we had play uh, Scarlett Johansson under the skin, the really superficial one. You make her the Chevy Chase character. Oh, <laughs> okay, okay. So someone we, like, who gender wanna, swap this, okay. You make it someone who doesn't want to be there again. You make it, you have the the same basis that Chevy Chase had. Someone who doesn't want to be there is the main actor. Yes, yes. Okay, I get behind that. I get behind that. And since I since I already mentioned it, um, the the car chase scene with the with the cops and well, there's a few you know cars that are used in this movie. Um, all of the cars for the play adaptation have to be those. Um, those little kid cars, like the Barbie cars and like the little Jeeps. So I want to see like, you know, big high school students, like they're, they're not fully grown adults yet, but they're definitely too big to fit in these cars. Like I want to see that used on stage, like for the, the car chase, the cop chase scene. Um, I definitely think the bone stripper, you have a Barbie car and then the kid like jumps onto a slip and slide and slides off screen. Like that would be the bone stripper. Like I definitely think, you know, that this, this, the, the little kids cars are, are very useful for this uh, adaptation. I figure what you do is you like have like, r- r- like RC cars on the set or on the stage and you drive those around. <laughs> so, so like nine tenths of the audience has no idea what's going on. You just hear, like, ex- like, they just hear the, the vibrating or the humming of the motors. Yeah. <laughs> essentially. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay. <laughs> so would we, I wanted to ask you about this because since in under the skin, we said for the deformed person, I think we needed a homeless person. Yes. Are we going to do the same thing for the uh, justice of the peace character, the, the deformed babies? Like what were your thoughts with that? Do we need some, some non high school students again in this? I think, I think I didn't we put the, the homeless person from the, the, uh, under the skin episode in the annihilation performance as well i think so yeah the homeless person showed up somewhere in there i I believe (laughs) i think the homeless person should be in all four in this instance i think it should be the character of the two adult babies we merge them into one character and the problem is that whoever plays the demi more character has to ad lib with that person because the homeless person doesn't learn their lines so it's just them behaving normally and every single performance is a unique scene or that scene is unique oh. for every performance. Ooh, I like that idea. That's a good one. I also like having the same homeless person show up in all of them. So he basically becomes like the one-eyed thumb from the thumb movies. Like he's a exactly. different role in every single thing. <laughs> and it, like I'm just imagining where, you know, the, the parents are like, man, I'm not sure what what these plays are doing to my child psychologically, but I can't wait to see how they get that homeless person in there again. <laughs> Bingo. He gets the most applause and the most flowers thrown at him when all, all the kids are like crying. It's like, my mom likes the homeless person better than me. <laughs> at the school newspaper the very next day, it's like a homeless man stands out in performance of nothing but trouble. They give him an honorary diploma at graduation. <laughs> 
guy, and yet somehow the homeless person still doesn't know what he's doing. Like he's completely oblivious to any of this. Yeah, but all he all he knows is he can steal kids' lunches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, their lunch money. Or he, I imagine like, he takes things. Like during the thing, he like he like start to like like I don't know if one of the character, like, one of the actors is wearing. So he'll like take part of their like outfit, like their sunglasses. <laughs> oh, that's good. Now, when I think about the play adaptation for our last film in this series, I'll I'll definitely keep in mind where the homeless person will make his appearance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Right on. Right on. I like that. So the other the other thing that I was thinking of um, for the play adaptation of Nothing But Trouble um, was with kind of some of the exploration that they do in the mansion. Um, you know, kind of leading up to the slide when they they find things like oh the wall that moves toward them or the um, the driver's license room and things like that. I was definitely kind of imagining this as very much uh, a box fort. Like they would basically build something that the characters can ca- crawl through made out of cardboard boxes. And maybe they're like held up and one of the sides is cut away so we can see them crawling through or whatever. Um, but, you know, something that that is just so weird looking. Like I'm just imagining where, you know, they get a whole kind of setup of of cardboard boxes and our characters are just you know crawling through them or something and then they get on a slide and and that takes them into the next scene just something where people are like did they did they just want to play with boxes like you know what what are they really doing because it doesn't look like the mansion at all but that's i was trying to give some thought into like how do you capture the essence of or the massiveness and the interconnectedness of this mansion um on the stage you know cardboard Lots yep. and lots of cardboard. Lots and lots of cardboard. And if the, uh, I don't know if the theaters will be equipped with this. Maybe we'll see if it's in the budget. But um, definitely, you know, some kind of like a uh, like a catwalk at the top where they can lower the Justice of the Peace down, like for the dinner seat and stuff like that. You know, like how some musicians make their entrance at award shows. You know, they get on the wire and they kind of fly above the audience. I want to see, you know, the, um, the, the Dan Aykroyd character doing that. Screaming, sc- screaming at the audience! Get yourself some dogs. <laughs> exactly. That's bingo. Right on. <laughs> What's that? Wasn't it like Sasha Baron Cohen when he was Bruno? He did that. He like fell on the audience as like part of the gag or something. Oh yeah, he fell into on, an yeah, he fell show. them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So something like that, where he falls into the audience type of thing. <laughs> Despite the fact that like the, like the the clearance between the stage and the audience is like like what 20 feet or so it happens every <laughs> performance yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> um, right on right on well zach did you have anything else for our play adaptation no i think that's it and for the film itself nothing but trouble i guess i have to ask was this nothing but trouble for you zach this film <laughs> Uh, no, like, this is definitely something to talk about. It's not like when we have, like, other, like, weird esoteric projects where it's like, oh, God, how are we going to drag this out for, like, an hour sure. and a half? Okay. No, there's a lot to talk about here, and hopefully, like, like, we're doing our job here, but, like, spreading the word about this. Like, I really, like, it, this was announced as, like, a Blu-ray title. I would instant buy it, because I really, I want to see this in all of its, like, high-definition glory. Yes, yes. That's the only thing we can really hope for at this point. <laughs> Next week, we are back to something that Zach and I are both firmly aware is a cinemodity. We agree. We've both seen it already. Um, and that'll be good. I think that next week is a very interesting one to talk about. I have some uh, very you know, strange history with it as well. And that is going to end out our Pure Cinemodities series. So I guess then, Zach, we have to ask, how are we going to finish up this episode? 
And as already mentioned, we have a lot of good music to work with, right? From the Digital Underground to the Bone Stripper song to who knows what else. <laughs> so we could play with that, right? Yeah, we got a nice little cocktail of music to, to work with this episode. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll throw some of that in reverse and uh, probably some, uh, you know, screaming, get your dogs on, that type of thing. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's 